The Lifestylist, featuring Mastin Kip. I'm Luke Story. For the past 22 years, I've been relentlessly committed to my deepest passion, designing the ultimate lifestyle based on the most powerful principles of spirituality, health, psychology, and personal development. The Lifestylist Podcast is a show dedicated to sharing my discoveries and the experts behind them with you. I've been into all things health and wellness for over 20 years, and I've taken every herb, every supplement. I've tried every practice, even some that I won't even repeat on the show because they're so embarrassing, quite frankly. But I've gone to extreme lengths to be healthy and feel good and be free of any sort of disorders or diseases. I plan to grow old gracefully and so far, so good. But one thing that I've discovered over the past couple of years, based on a lot of research, experience, and also interviewing over 200 experts in the field of health is that one of our main problems is exposure to blue and green artificial light at night. It's called junk lighting and it trashes you. So I don't care how much you exercise, what supplements you take, what vitamins you take. If you're exposing yourself to technology like your phone, computers, street lights, car lights, any artificial lighting at night that is not red or amber color, you're playing yourself. I just, I got to tell you, and there is a solution to that. It's a company called Blue Blocks and they make protective eyewear. Now that sounds really geeky. They make really cool, what look like sunglasses at night, but they block blue light. So you can go to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X.com. Enter the code lifestylist and save 15% off their eyewear. They have different versions too. There's some that you wear during the daytime or on a computer or in early evening, or the really dark ones that block out 100% of the harmful blue light at night. So you've got option there, you've got different frames, and uh, they also do prescription and non-prescription and reading glasses. So they are hooking it up over at blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X, blueblocks.com. Check it out. I love me some green juice, and that's why I'm so grateful to be promoting our sponsor, Organifi. And I talk about that a lot because I use that stuff every day. Now, another product I use from Organifi almost every day, but rather at night than in the morning, is the Organifi Gold. This is the Soothe and Recover blend. This stuff tastes delicious, you guys. It's like a golden latte. Now, the core of the Organifi Gold is turmeric. It's an anti-inflammatory spice. And it's one of my favorite herbs in the world. Now, they combine the turmeric with coconut milk, cinnamon, ginger, lemon balm, and even a couple medicinal mushrooms like lion's mane to reduce stress and help you relax and sleep. It's amazing. So I use this as a base for a lot of my very relaxing tonics. So I'll have friends that come over and they're stressed out from the cell towers in LA and the traffic and the 5G and, you know, life. And um, they're like, dude, hook me up. So I'll set them up with some biohacking technology, some things that relax them. And the elixir I always make is based with the Organifi Gold. Now, I put all kinds of other crazy weird stuff in there too, but this is what makes it taste good and be effective. So you can go hardcore like I do, or you can make a very simple cold or hot drink with Organifi Gold 
and you'll be living the dream, whether it's in the morning, middle of the day, or especially at night, which again is when I like to take it. So go to Organifi.com, that's spelled with an I, Organifi.com forward slash Luke, and save 15% off your order of the Organifi Gold or any of their other products using the code Lifestylist. Organifi.com forward slash Luke, the code is Lifestylist. We're back in the saddle again, folks. Today's guest is Mastin Kip. He's a number one best-selling author, speaker, and creator of Functional Life Coaching, the only data-driven, trauma-informed coaching modality. And I've got to say, ahead of this conversation, that this was one of the most meaningful, vulnerable, and transformative shows I've ever recorded. Perhaps even one of the most transformative meetings I've ever had with another human being. I was somewhat familiar with Mastin's work and I knew that I wanted him on the show because I knew that he was the trauma guy and I'd watched some of his videos here and there, read some of his stuff. Like I had an idea of what he was about and I'm like, this guy's definitely overqualified to be on the show. He's legit. But when we sat down together, dude, something magical happened. I mean, so many pieces just clicked for me <laughs> in this conversation and you'll probably hear it as you listen to it. I'm going, oh, dirt, dirt, dirt. there's things inside my mind spirit, soul, the dots are being connected. I'm seeing, oh shit, this is my problem. This is everyone's problem. We were all hurt at some point in our life. And that is manifesting with various types of neuroses, addictions, etc. And then we're running around playing you know, whack-a-mole, trying to fix these bad habits and ways of um, coping when we really could just go to the root of it and heal the trauma. And it's interesting that this episode happens to fall when it does because Two weeks ago, we had Jack Cruz talking about, you know, the insanity of 5G and all these things that are really, you know, wreck our health. Then we had Bruce Lipton last week that's saying you can overcome that with the power of belief and the power of your mind. And then Bruce also talked about how your subconscious dictates 95% of your behavior. So no matter what a great person you want to be and how happy you want to be, that's only 5% of you. And so this all leads into this model of healing the trauma, which is that 95% in your subconscious mind, right? And then next week's episode, actually a couple of episodes are all about my trip to Rhythmia in Costa Rica, where I did four ayahuasca ceremonies for the first time in my life as someone who's not so much as like had a sip of beer in 22 years. So next week's episodes are going to really dovetail nicely here because what the ayahuasca experience was about for me was healing trauma, healing my heart, healing the harms that I've done myself, that I've done others, and that have been perpetrated upon me by other wackos earlier in life, right? So this conversation is just poignant, and I love the way these shows have kind of, I mean, I don't want to say it wasn't by design. Of course, I kind of decide which one comes out um, on which date, etc. But there's just been this chain of events that has been extremely healing for me. And it's, you know, such a joy for me to bring you as the listener along for the ride. So if you missed uh, last week with Bruce Lipton, I recommend that you reverse this and go back and listen to that. Definitely listen to this entire Mastin Kip conversation. It's just fantastic. He's a brilliant guy. And then you definitely want to tune in next week for, I think there's going to be two or three episodes documenting the whole ayahuasca experience. Well, not the part when I was actually on the medicine because I don't think I could work a tape recorder uh, for most of the time, but I did bring my recorder with me and do field reports before and after all of the ceremonies. I was recording on the airplane on the way down there and it's going to be a fantastic series if you're someone that's curious about plant medicine and using them 
as actual medicine and not as a party. So you can definitely look forward to next week's episode. And more than anything, I'm just thrilled to deliver this week's show with Mast and Kip to you. So if you're someone that's been struggling lately in life and uh, you don't know what the trouble might be and you're trying to meditate, trying to pray, going to 12-step groups, trying everything, and you're finding that the change is not coming fast enough, that the relief is slow in its approach, well, your issue might just be trauma. So let's jump in with Mastin Kip as he teaches us how to not let our trauma become our drama. Mastin Kip, welcome to the show, dude. Thanks, Luke. I'm happy to be here, man. I, uh, I've been looking forward to this for a while. So thanks for having me. This I have awesome. too. Yeah. I'm stoked. I've been devouring a lot of your content uh, recently, as I tend to do before guests come, come on. And um, I just relate to your stuff on so many levels. And having your book for a couple of days now, admittedly, kind of speed reading it and digesting it as quickly as possible. I'm realizing though, as I've gotten into your book, and of course, we're going to talk about it, that it's not the kind of book you can skim through. You actually need <laughs> to go through it. It's a program. It's not a book. It's like, yeah. it's a personal development kind of, you know, awakening program. So we're going to talk about that. But there's such cool stuff in there. When I was making my notes, I'm going, I think this is going to be a six hour interview because <laughs> there's just, there's like so many touch points yeah. that are things that I relate to. That's awesome. So I'm super stoked. So what are you most excited about in your life right now, career-wise, personal-wise? Like what's got you totally fired up right now? Yeah, I, uh, I, I'm i jazzed for 2019 uh, because uh, the last three or four years for me has been this sort of like fog. Uh, in about 2015, about a year after I released my first book, I just had just lost all passion for what I was doing. Like I had a blog called The Daily Love and it started in 2007. And at our peak around then, we were doing about 7 million readers a month. And you know, Oprah was like, I read it every day. And it was like everything that you could imagine success to be. And we had all the influencers that were you know, blogging and all that jazz. So how big was your email list? It was... I mean, at that. the biggest is like about a half a million people. So I mean, it was, <laughs> it was big. Crazy. It was big. It was big. That's crazy. I was looking at mine on Drip yesterday. I'm not going to say publicly what my email list is, but it sucks. By the way, you guys go to lukestory.com forward slash newsletter and join my goddamn list because it's pathetic. Yeah. Anyway, um, I need to get up to a half a million and find that I'm still not happy. Yeah, as no, you found. no you, won't, you won't happen. But, but what happened was is that I found myself literally getting envious of my friends who were doing personal development work, right? So Brendan or Lewis or Gabby or Marie or Danielle or whoever. And I was like, Mastin, what's that about? So I don't, I don't ever make my responses wrong. I always get curious about my responses. I started to realize like, you know, you've been coaching people and you want to do that. And I was really scared to let go of something. And I decided to kill it uh, because I didn't, I didn't start it for money or success. I just started it because it was kind of like, it was almost like a creative arts therapy basically for me to put out what I was going through and talk about it. And then all of a sudden it became a thing. And it's hard to let go of something that Oprah validates. You know, that's really, really difficult. And, but I did. And then I kind of self-initiated again, a, this like, this like curious journey of like, who am I now? And I don't want to be Tony Robbins. I don't want to be Brendan Burchard. I don't want to be Lewis Howes. I don't want to be Luke Story. Cause you know, it's easy to get out there and with social media and start to compare yourself and like, Oh my God, I'm kind of like that, but not really. And I tossed all that aside and basically felt super naked and insignificant and why the hell did I do that? And started to kind of get really clear on over those two or three years, what makes me different? What do I love to do? What is it about the type of coaching that I do that's different? Because um, I was getting comparisons to Tony Robbins and stuff like that. And while it's flattering for the press to say that, I don't ever want to be the next something. I just want to be me. 
And I never want to be the former something either because I always want to be something new. And so uh, in the last 12 months, we got really clear on, okay, yeah. So for 10 years, you have over 10,000 hours of doing coaching. It's trauma-informed. That's what I talk about. And I thought I had to have a PhD just to say the word trauma for a long time. And I found out that's not the case. And then I decided to What's talk the qualif- about that. qualification that you've had some trauma? Well, <laughs> we can get into it. it. Um, but <laughs> bottom line, to help somebody with emotional trauma, um, the most important thing is to be able to create is emotional safety. And so if you can create emotional safety, that's the most healing thing that you can do for somebody. Got it. And there's lots of other like hacks and stuff you can get into. But you know, yeah. the bottom line is if you don't feel safe, nothing else is going to change. And so then it was, how do I talk about trauma? And we were putting that out last year and testing different things. And about August of last year, I was like, okay, I'm just going to own what I believe, which is that every mental health disorder isn't a disorder. It's a response to trauma and it's mislabeled. And I'm going to just own that because that's what I believe. That's what I've seen. And it's completely wrong. And the American Psychiatric Association is wrong. It's not a disorder and it can be cured and it can be reversed depending on how maladaptive it is. And I went hard on, okay, guys, so it's not PTSD, it's PTSR, post-traumatic stress response, not disorder. It's not an identity. You can start to, we can change it. Mm, and that's I, good. Can you say that again? Post-traumatic stress. So PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. People get that diagnosis. My father's a veteran in the Vietnam War. He has that diagnosis. And uh, people, when they have a disorder from the DSM, which is where it comes from, they don't just say, oh, I have a disorder. It becomes an identity. So I don't have just a, a PTSD. It's who I am. And they take it on and the standard lang- languaging is, and it can't be cured or it can't be fixed. It's just how it is from now on. And that I don't, the evidence is so clear that that's not the case. And um, so you said response. Response. Because right. what happens is the thing about the way that healthcare and medicine and mental health, which it shouldn't be called mental health, which we can get into, it's the wrong name, but all healing modalities are moving towards is a massive amount of respect for how the body responds just things because it's been here longer than we have. Like our evolution has been around for millions of years. So if there's a response like stress or diabetes or something like that, there's an underlying dysfunctional pattern and the response makes sense based on the underlying pattern. And the problem with Western medicine is that it over pathologizes things, meaning it only focuses on what's wrong. And that's not a bad thing. Like if you have an x-ray because you have something broken, you know it's wrong, but you can't only focus on that. And you can't make that who you are for sure. And that's so easy to do in the current mental health system is to say, oh, well, you don't understand. I mean, you know, I have a general anxiety disorder. So that's just who I am. And they kind of like almost get like uh, this learned helplessness based on their disorder that they can't change. And that's the standard messaging. And then the psychiatrist just say, here's some medication and suppress stuff and manage your symptoms and <laughs> good luck, right? And mental health diagnosis is on the rise. All these issues are on the rise. We have significantly polarized country right now and world because we're viewing the problem not in full context. And the, but the data is so clear uh, based on the work of uh, Bessel van der Kolk, Dr. van der Kolk, is that developmental trauma, which is what happens to us as we grow up, and then attachment trauma, which is how we learn to relate to people emotionally and psychologically, disrupts connection and all these disorders are essentially coping mechanisms. So if you take someone with dissociative identity disorder or multiple personalities and you put them together with like a hundred other people who have that disorder, they might seem crazy. But you put that person back with their family of origin, they're brilliantly dissociating from the trauma of their environment. And so it was, we have to view it from a different perspective. And so what happened in August was I started, I was like, oh, can I say this? Am I, am I, I don't know. And I just said, screw it, I'm going to do it. 
And all of a sudden, like all these like rebel therapists, rebel practitioners, rebel functional medicine doctors, everyone was like, dude, thank you. Yes. And it's just been this sort of like a really encouraging process to be like, okay, I have been on to the right thing and now I'm saying it and I didn't die. So that's okay. And in 2019, it's like, we're super clear on that and we know the messaging. And so the, when I'm super clear on something, I can execute and do cool stuff. And for three or four years, I haven't been. And so I'm really excited to be able to bring this forward now and kind of hopefully you know disrupt that space because it needs disruption. And I can do it outside of licensure because it's not going to come from inside the system. It has to come outside the system. So we're being approached all the time by... You know, psychiatrists, psychologists, gestalt therapists, you know, attachment therapists, like you name it, about like, dude, like, tell me more about this trauma thing. Like, I want to come do stuff with you. Bring your stuff into our, you know, rehab center. Like, these are the things that are starting to happen. And so, for that um, to sort of really start to scale and get momentum this year is just really exciting and absolutely makes the three or four years of wandering worth it. You know, oh, that's so, that's, but only in retrospect <clears throat> can I say that. <laughs> that's so inspiring on so many levels because, A, uh, just, anecdotally, I completely relate with, um, you know, having different versions of yourself professionally, different things that you've done as we were talking about. And I want to get into a little of that too in a moment, um, you know, coming from being in the Hollywood machine and working in the fashion and music industries and all that, you know, in my own experience, kind of trying to figure out what I am, Yeah, you know, because I'm into all the health and biohacking stuff, but it's like, I'm not, that's not me. I'm not like a Dave Asprey, Ben Greenfield, like, those guys have that shit on lock. It's not really my, you know, forte to be fully that. I'm more into, as we were talking about, my teacher, Tage, the Kundalini yoga and meditation and very esoteric sort of spiritual stuff. So it's like, well, how do you, what's, what's your message? And I understand yeah. not really knowing what it is, especially when you've dabbled in a number of different modalities and been successful in your own life. And in the case of coaching other people using different things, like to finally settle on a, I'm a this. So congratulations on nailing that yeah. A and B having people be responsive to it too because you could decide you know what I'm an opera singer <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. book a gig and people Crickets. are like yeah no you're not <laughs> yeah exactly <laughs> you know? so it's 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 reassuring you know and you've and you've got pioneers like like you doing this and it comes to mind a former guest Kelly Brogan who I'm assuming love you her. know I don't um, know her level. but I am obsessed right so I mean she's someone not to dis, you know discount what you're doing in terms of risk taking but that's someone inside the system going right. hey f you guys we're all making a mistake, which is so courageous. And I think that gives other people a platform to say, oh, you can talk about this. And it's, yeah. that's what's so fun about this, this new sort of non-mainstream media outlet that we have in podcasts and to a degree on YouTube, um, a little less so lately. But you know, a guy like you can come out of relative obscurity, start a blog, doing newsletters, and then become a thing. You yeah. know what I mean? Yeah. And it's just a matter of like you defining that thing, refining that thing, zeroing in on what your mission is, what your purpose is. And then if the world responds, you're off and running, which is really exciting. I think that we're in a really interesting point in um, in our culture and history right now. And I'm, I'm right there with you on 2019 of like, let's all reinvent ourselves and find out why we're here and unabashedly just go after that thing. So it's inspiring on that level. And then also... I'm just so with you. And that's why I was excited to sit down and talk to you and start to read your book and devour your other appearances and content. Because after 22 years now of <laughs> working on this, this personality called Luke Story and trying to get my shit together <laughs> and help other people to do that, I truly believe it all comes down to trauma. Like yeah. that's just it. I don't care if it manifests as, you know, what we call a mental illness or an addiction or some other compulsive behavior. 
we're all just running away from those experiences that we've had that hurt us. And until we find a way to deal with them that's productive and healthy, we're just going to keep spinning out as a society and individually. So I'm super stoked. Yeah. Um, before we... And by the way, what you just said, yeah. like frame it, postmark it, bookmark it, remember it because it's everything. It it's is. Like if you don't understand, Yogi Bhajan, right? So I study with Tej. If you, uh, you know, the Aquarian Sutras, right? So he talks about if you don't understand with compassion, you'll misunderstand the times, right? And this is what he means, right? Because what we're going through isn't about race or religion or creed or sexual orientation. Those are surface level identities, which are important to validate and to validate the experience of people who have not been privileged, who have been marginalized. And the next level is to understand that everybody has trauma, which doesn't excuse behavior, but to change a thing, you have to understand a thing. And it's totally. hard to do what you just said. But if you're not viewing it through that lens, you're going to completely misunderstand the times, like Bajan said. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's that, it's the paradox. Everyone is innocent. You know, it's forgive them. They know not what they do. It's like even perpetrators of more trauma are only doing that because they're traumatized. That's right. You know, which, it, which is not an excuse for sure, but it's an explanation. And when you have the explanation, then you can change it. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, but like I don't want someone without, thinking. Well, without compassion, then there's just, um, you know, perpetrator and victim model, and there's no end to that loop. There's no way out of that, that sort of hamster wheel. You That's know, right. Without compassion and an understanding of zooming out of the big picture and seeing, oh, okay, I can see why this happened, and and I just want to say on record, absolutely, do I not condone any, sure. you know, any abusive or harmful behavior? Uh, I'm someone who suffered a lot of trauma, and people very close to me have been extremely victimized um, on a number of different levels. But it doesn't do any good to not be compassionate toward the journey and to you know really see that at the core, everyone is innocent and they're doing what they think is right at that given time, even That's if right. it has really harmful consequences to other people. So there's so much here to unpack and I want to do that. But I, on a more personal level, so I'm excited for you 2019. You're like, this is what I'm doing. I don't care. People are responding. It's what we need right now. It's what I need right now. Um, you mentioned though earlier that you had moved from LA to Ashland, Asheville. 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 Yeah. I always get Ashland, Oregon and Asheville, North Carolina. Yeah, North Carolina. both cool, but they're on different parts of the country. <laughs> right. But yeah, they're so both what, cool. So what prompted your move? This is a selfish question because yeah. I, you know, I've been in LA for 30 years and I'm, I'm moving out of this apartment into a house in Laurel Canyon. That's my nice. first step in a couple of weeks to like, ugh wean myself off of the city and the EMFs and all this shit yeah. around here. Um, but, you know, eventually I think, well, I don't probably need to live in LA once I feel like I'm established professionally and I can move around a little bit. So what prompted your move and what's it like to leave a city like yeah. LA for a smaller well, town? I, so just for context, I've been in LA for 17 years. Okay. Okay. So I had like multiple lives here, right. lots of relationships, lots of friends. Like just yesterday I was at the 101 Cafe, which I've been to in five years. And I ran to a friend of mine. I was like, of course, like still, like I still got it, you know. Um, but uh, the reason why we left is my partner, Jenna, wanted to be close to her family. Uh, and they're from North Carolina. And I was like, no, I'm not going to the South. I'm not a racist. I'm not in the Confederate <laughs> flags. I don't vote for Donald Trump. I'm not uh, any of that shit. <laughs> that's that's funny. No I don't way. even think of North Carolina as the South. That's funny. Well, yeah. me. I, well, I, I, I just, anything like South of like uh, Washington, D.C., you know, is like... <laughs> Like suspect to me, you right. know. And then uh, a couple of years ago, I did an event in Asheville. I was like, "This place is cool," you know. Like, okay, they got like Reiki people, and they got like Hari Krishnas dancing here, and like the cost of living is what you know. You can get how much for how much, 
And I was like, okay. And then we decided, okay, we'll, we'll try for a year and we'll test it to see like, do we like it? And basically the answer is yes. And what's interesting is if you know, you're in Los Angeles, right? Like, you know, we're kind of like in Hollywood right now. Hollywood is a different country than Venice and also Los Feliz and Studio City and certainly Santa Barbara. So I see people more or less the same than I did before because no one really ventures outside their little areas here because it's so hard to like... I mean, crossing the 405 is like hard. You know what I mean? It's just like, it's like emotionally hard. It's like takes a long time. So it's it's interesting that like the amount of time it takes to get from Asheville to LA, you know, is kind of how long it takes to get to Ojai in terms of timing, depending on traffic. So I don't feel that far away. And also with social media, it's not that far away. But the difference is quality of life. And my friends, you know, Gabrielle Bernstein and Chris Carr, like they moved away and Chris moved to Woodstock. And I don't know exactly where Gabby moved, but she went out uh, into New York State. And they have like these like homes. They're like away. And I was like, well, if they can do it. I can do it. Because, you know, right now economics and, and resources move to where the value is. And that's not necessarily a, a physical location anymore. And so I still come here to do things like this. And I have friends to maintain and relationships. So I come here regularly. But the quality of life is incredible. Uh, you know, and also uh, Tony Shea in his book, uh, Delivering Happiness, when he moved Zappos from San Francisco to Vegas, he did that because he wanted to have high level customer service for Zappos, which is what it's famous for. And the only way he could do that was to be in Vegas because the cost of living and everything was lower. So we could hire better people at lower costs. And Asheville is like a trauma informed uh, hiring pool, uh, which I didn't realize when we moved there. So, like, we have this like kick ass team that's there. And they're all like amazing and they're not in LA. They're like there and they move there because they're kind of moving away from cities like this. And they have an amazing Kundalini yoga community there. There's a, a, a studio called Long Time Sun and they have like Yogi Tea and they do the Sunday thing. No way. The, it's all, it's all wow. like authentic. It's like in a house, you right, know, like right. with the mung beans and rice. And the yoga, <laughs> the guy who owns it is not like something, something Car Kalsa. Like he just calls himself Bob. And like <laughs> he has a spiritual name, but he's Bob. Right. I'm like, I like that guy because he's not like taking it that seriously, you know, like he does the practice. Right. And when, when you're in the presence of someone who practices Kundalini yoga, you immediately feel calmer in their presence usually. And uh, that's how I feel when I'm around him and he's an amazing soul. But the, the community is really incredible. And we connect through Atlanta, which goes through pretty much anywhere. And so it hasn't been really different because I feel like when I'm here, like when I was in Larchmont, I'd never went to Venice. So I still go to Venice the same amount. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Totally, yeah. You know what I mean? So it yeah. doesn't really feel like I left. That's that makes cool. any sense. That's but the cool. EMFs are low. The quality of life is better. The cost of living is lower. The talent pool is much better. So, and if you're not in LA for a purpose, man, this is a brutal town. Yeah. You know? So, I'm, yeah. I'm feeling that. So as I said, it's a it's a personal question. I could have asked you off mic because I'm just like, bro, what's it like? Because, you know, I'm, I'm poking around and looking at... Uh, Asheville, like is the, Asheville is what Austin used to be before it became big. Right. So it's like the place where like it's like the new new place to go. Right. Which I love. So don't move there, okay? <laughs> yeah. Um, we'll edit this part out so no one moves and yeah, ruins don't move your there. town. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, it's funny cuz I I I've been hearing about Austin for, you know, a few years now and I finally got out there to um record with the guys at On It and yep. and all that stuff and um and Paleo FX and I was like this is a cool town. I started poking around at real estate and I'm like, uh this is barely cheaper than LA yeah. and you have no mountains and no beach or you guys are tripping. Like it's cool. No <laughs> offense, Austin, but like if it's not significantly cheaper in real estate wise and cost of living wise, then like why, why don't you just stay in the outskirts of LA or something? Um, it is. It was, yeah, it was expensive as hell. They do have Barton, the Barton Springs pool though. That was legit. Yeah. 
Um, so anyway, okay, cool. Well, thanks for the update on that. And that's good to know that you can still have a life and do what you do, which is kind of, I think, similar to where my career is sort of leading me. As long as, as I, you're consistent <clears throat> online and putting out cool stuff, like that's all that matters. Right. Yes. Okay. Excellent. So let's get into the to the to the nitty gritty here. I'd I want to know how you went from being an industry, you know, music industry executive, hard partying, wild living guy, into now being this functional life coach. And A and B, what is a functional life coach? Which I'm sure will will lead into that. Like, how did this transformation happen for you? Um, I would say that the the bottom line is is I moved to Los Angeles immediately after turning, uh, well, 19 because I didn't get into USC the first time I tried. So the second time I was like, I, don't, I was still my first year in college. I was at the University of Kansas and hating it. Like I wanted to leave Kansas so bad. And so I got into USC when I was 19. And as soon as it was like, poof, I was just gone. And, uh, you know, uh, when we look at like developmental trauma, there's so many people don't understand what emotional trauma is. And also, it's not necessarily that scary of a topic. Uh, but if you have stress, anxiety, depression, if you get into constant fights in relationships, if you have a hard time regulating your emotional state, if you have a hard time earning or keeping money, if you have a hard time you know, letting go of relationships or uh, you avoid relationships like a lot, all those are like symptoms of some type of unhealed check, or unresolved check, stuff. Check, check, Yeah, pretty much everybody, right? Everybody. <laughs> no, I'm thinking of myself. Yeah, no, but everybody, every, pretty much everybody that's like, oh, that's me. Um, so the benefit of doing your trauma work, understanding what trauma is, is so valuable because it helps resolve those things. Most people think that emotional trauma is like only you know physical assault or abuse, which it certainly is, but there's lots of other types of trauma as well. It's very misunderstood at the moment. And so for me growing up, my sort of developmental trauma was my mom had a broken back. I wasn't supposed to be born. Doctor told her not to have a kid because she broke her back when she was 13 riding horses. My father was a, a veteran in the Vietnam War. He was there for three years. As a combat medic in the front line, seeing combat trauma, he saw everything you could imagine. The worst of war because he was the medic. Lots of death and saved lots of lives. He recently was just with a guy that he saved his life and met his whole family. It was like 17 people or something crazy. Um, They're alive because of him. I was like, wow. Whoa. But, you know, so he has PTSD. My mom had emotional uh, sort of abuse in her childhood. And then they get together and they have me. And then my mom has this broken back because the pregnancy made it worse. And for the first, I don't know, 12 years of my life, she was bedridden. And so the focus was on taking care of her. And unintentionally, there was an emotional neglect towards me, which was not like they're bad parents. It was just, that's what happened. My mom was in a lot of pain. So I got the signal that like my needs don't matter as much as somebody else's needs emotionally. So when I got here, you know, uh, that pattern continued. And, you know, the first girl that like paid attention to me, I was like, oh, Oh my, like the first one, like not like, or do we have the same values? Is there a future here? Like any of those things. Just like, You're paying attention to me. I'm in, right? Oh, you do cocaine. I'm in, right? Like I'm in, I'm in, whatever it is, right? But those are valid qualifiers. <laughs> yeah. You know, you're pretty, you pay attention to me and you do coke. I'm in, right? Whatever it is. But all of that was because I wanted to keep the relationship there. And I had gotten an internship at a music management company called The Firm. And I uh, worked my ass off. I was the first one in, last one out. I moved my way up to being a junior manager there very quickly. We had a lot of high-profile clients. So we were working with at the time, Limp Bizkit, Korn, uh, DiCaprio, Scorsese, Natalie Portman. We launched a brand, a, t- a clothing brand called Pony that we then sold to the Chinese, I believe. Um, you know, we, had, we, had, we launched Chris Angel's career. They launched um, Build-A-Bear. Like So many different things were happening there. They launched a XXX franchise with Vin Diesel. And I watched all this happen. And the guy that I was... 
next to is he, we were both assistants, like in the you know bullpen, getting yelled at, making shit happen. You know, he left, and next thing I knew, like he was managing this girl that was like this socialite named Paris Hilton, and I was like, "What are you gonna do with that man?" Like I don't understand. And when he made Paris happen, my friend Jason Moore and I was like, this is, "I just saw all this going on." I was like, "This is crazy." Now I wasn't, I know, had zero context of like misogyny, trauma any of that. I was just like doing drugs, going like, this is how Hollywood operates essentially. And about two and a half years into that, got offered my dream job, which was Fred Durst, who was the lead singer of Limp Bizkit, still is. Which They're making a comeback, by the way, which I couldn't believe. They're they're like cool again. I was like, that's amazing. That's Uh, a sign that we're getting old when things come back around like that. Yeah, totally. Dude, I was driving on um, Hollywood Boulevard up like uh, west of La Brea, which when I moved here, that was like where all the rock, you know, the 80s rockers lived in 89. And I pulled up to a stoplight and I was actually reminiscing just about my early, you know, like kind of hair metal glam rock days in Hollywood. And I look over and there's a dude like taken in a time machine from 1989, like full on like LA guns, the guns, and yeah. Rose, you know, just the whole thing. And I was like, oh my God, I'm old. Yeah. That's a fucking thing again. Yeah. 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 It was mortifying and kind of nostalgic at the same totally. time. Totally. Like, yeah. You don't really know. You know? <laughs> yeah, totally. Um, totally. You don't know. But so anyway, like Fred offered me the role as senior <laughs> vice president of his record label and he was had an imprint at Geffen. So my title was senior vice president of A&R at Geffen Records. And A&R is the people who sign new bands and get to do all that cool stuff. And within about two or three months, I had lost that job. Uh, partially because of my drug use, but mostly because the president at the time, a guy named Jordan Schur, uh, I think looking back was probably intimidated because I came from the management company that worked with a lot of the artists and I had a very close relationship with them. And I don't think he liked that. So I think, you know, I've never actually publicly said that. Um, but he, I think, I think he was probably intimidated by me um, and threatened. And so he basically fabricated a lie and told Fred that. And then I got fired. And I've never actually publicly said that. It feels kind of good to say that. And, and that threw me into this whole like kind of who am I? That was my dream job moment. I was doing, I was like went double hard on the Coke at that time and the alcohol. And my relationship completely unraveled. And uh, one day, I just kind of... the end. I was like two or three weeks into this unraveling because I live right next door to Geffen Records in Santa Monica still. So I was staring at it every day. And uh, I worked my ass off. And one day, I just decided I'm done with this cocaine thing. And I flushed it. And it was kind of a spiritual experience because there's something that felt like it wasn't me. Maybe it was my unconscious. Maybe it was spirit. I don't really know. But it just flushed it. And I made a decision the next day. I want to feel as good off the drugs as I did on the drugs. And basically... If I had to rewind that and make a context for today, I want to learn how to biohack is basically what I was stating at the time. And um, and then that started my whole personal development journey. And the first book I read was Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Oh, nice. And Covey said, seek Great. to understand before you can be understood. Right. Uh, and I was like, well, man, I wish I would have known that, you know, uh, like literally two months ago. <laughs> and, it's and also then the in deep uh, the uh, prayer of St. Francis of Assisi. That's right. Yeah. That's right. It's pretty That's much... Right. If you just follow that prayer, you have a good life. Easier Basically. said than done. Yes. What I want to know is how much Coke did you flush? Because that is meaningful Honestly, to me. no yeah. one's asked me that question before. <laughs> Two eight balls. Oh, shit, bro. That's a commitment. Yeah. I was like, get out of here, man. Like, no one's ever asked me that question before. That's funny. Well, that makes... <laughs> see, that's more of a commitment. Like, I, when I was um, a crack smoker in my former life, every night I would go get a new pipe. You know why? Not because my old pipe didn't work. They worked just fine. It's a tube of glass. Yep. You put a thing called a chore boy inside it, which is like a scrubber you get at the liquor store in the ghetto. 
uh, every night I would break the pipe, you know, <laughs> six, eight, nine in the morning. I'm, oh my God, I'm such a loser. I'm never doing this again. And I would shatter the pipe. And then the next night I'd be like, it wasn't that bad. I should probably <laughs> head down to the gas station where the homeless guys and buy a new pipe, you know? Totally. So yeah, I, but the, it wasn't much of a commitment. It's like yeah. a $3 tube of glass, yeah. uh, which is easily replaceable. Two eight balls of Coke. Now you're on your way to recovery, my friend. I, well, the thing is, I didn't start the addiction. Be, like, I didn't start out like a Coke head that like dated a girl. Like I dated a girl and then did cocaine to like maintain the relationship. When the relationship was over, like... Looking back, it didn't really have the same purpose. Now, now, the one thing I will say about cocaine, which is not an endorsement because it's the worst thing you could do and highly legal, but it gave me a feeling, a felt sense of confidence for the first time in my life. And I'd never felt that way before. Now, do not do that shit. There's lots of other ways to get that dopamine. <laughs> it's dopamine is what it gave me. Yeah. yeah. Right? Um, not was, to mention it wears off in about 20. Five seconds. Yeah. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, like You're solving the world's problems. You're like, I'm the fucking man. Do you have any more of that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I just morphed into a loser again. <laughs> yeah, totally. Well, cocaine is like funny because like everyone like at the table has the best ideas in the world, but nobody leaves the table. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so, it's it gets, like it musician, when musicians are high in the studio... You know, you come up with these great songs and great arrangements and performances. And as long as everyone's high, it sounds amazing. But the next day you come back in, you're like, what the fuck? We weren't even in tune. Totally. Yeah, totally. Yeah, no, that that definitely was the case. Um, and I had some... So that that whole that whole like unwinding was very difficult. Um, and then I got on Adderall uh, from my psychiatrist at the time, which was sort of like almost... Adderall's like cocaine's methadone, kind of, in a lot of ways. Um, and then many years later, I went to the aiming clinics and they told me why that works for me and and how my brain, I had three traumatic brain injuries and all kinds of stuff. Whoa. Did you, when you got the brain scans at the aiming clinic, did you know that you'd had the brain trauma? I forgot. Oh, I totally forgot. And they were like, oh yeah, so this is the pathways. And of course you would do cocaine and sugar because this is what you need. And so they helped me understand that I was just trying to self-medicate illegally and expensively. Right. Um, and now I, I their recommendation, I'm still on Adderall XR every day. I also take a lot of uh, glutathione intramuscularly to counteract the oxidative stress that gives to the body. It's not cardiotoxic. And I feel like I have my life back and it's I have wow. TBIs. So how often do you do the glutathione? Every day. You do? Like in two the butt cheek? Every day. Well, I, I rotate. So I go like okay. back, front, or like uh, front, back, back. So I kind of go around. Otherwise, yeah, yeah. it's like too much local trauma. <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know? totally. Well, a funny story on that too. Like I never got uh, educated on how to do an IM. So at first, I was on the lower part of my butt cheek, which is like not where you put it. And it was like hurtful. And there's like sciatic nerves in there. And yeah, shit. you could hit a nerve. Yeah. Well, I did a couple of times. I was like, whatever. And so like I went to go get like a uh, like a cryo locally here. And I was like, hey, could, I guess the nurse, could you give me a B12 shot? She's like, sure. So she gives me a shot and she sees it. She goes, honey, what is going on here? And I was like, oh, that's just my you know, glutathione B12 shot. She's like, honey, it's a little higher up. It's up here. And I was like, yeah. oh, you know, so like, like you want to like make sure you get like medical professionals to help you before you just like biohack. You when, know? when I started doing the intram, <laughs> uh, intramuscle like glute shots, I, I went on YouTube and I was watching like, and, and dudes would like take a Sharpie and make a little quadrant, yep. you know, a uh, diagram on their butt cheek. Cause I was paranoid of hitting a nerve. And then eventually I, I nailed it. But I like your hula hoop style where you, Kind of just go around the midsection yeah. so you're not hitting the same spot too many. Yeah, times. no. I, I, at first, I did that. I was like, you know, I think I'm starting to look like a junkie. I need to go like over here. You know, I will just walk it around. But All yeah, right. so yeah, the TBIs and um, I have. Uh, I think there's like five types of ADD that Amen acknowledges, and I think I have like three or four of those. Um, so you know, there's like legit. But I'll, but the thing is, is that the medication, like I view it like prescription supplementation, because like if you're gonna change your life and like you know uh, go to the gym. And you're taking glutamine or whatever to like supplement your muscles or amino acids or whatever. Um, that's not going to lift the weight for you. 
right? But it can supplement the work. And so that's the way that I view uh, that my Adderall prescription and glutathione because it's, it's prescription supplementation. It's not going to help me have purpose. It's not going to help me have interpersonal relationships or feel safe self-disclosing with my girlfriend, right? That's not what it does. It just helps me have a little bit more uh, of my brain pathways working so that I can actually function like a normal human being because I have three TBIs. Um, and dyslexia and ADHD. So I'm like, curious. Uh, <clears throat> I know I interrupt a lot. I just so many questions good. come up. Uh, but you're not interrupting like Gary Vaynerchuk did to Tony <laughs> Robbins. You know, so that's good. <laughs> One of my goals in life is to interrupt him more than he interrupted Tony. Oh, that's funny. That's <laughs> funny. Yeah, I, 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 I hear that. Um, my question is, have you ever tried modafinil? I haven't. I know Dave talks a lot about yeah. that. And I've thought about it. And, you know, like... When it comes to like stimulants and nootropics and stuff like that, I like to introduce stuff very slowly. And like, if I get to a home level of homeostasis where I feel pretty good, you know, I may or may not want to introduce something. If I get yeah. to a phase where I want to be more productive, like when I go write my next book, you know, that might be a time to do it. And it would be under the supervision of Jay Faber at the Amen Clinics. It would be under the supervision of my functional medicine doctor from IFM. Like, it would be like medically supervised because sure. the last thing sure. I want, like, I'm biohacking is cool. But it's also like, uh, you know, you could kill yourself because <laughs> yeah, the pathways yeah. and contraindications. Oh, dude, I've, yeah, I mean, <laughs> I wouldn't say I've almost killed myself without being uh, overstating it, but I've definitely had some adverse reactions with my self experimentation. I asked about um, modafinil specifically because I've known a few people that have been, according to them, fairly addicted to Adderall and kind of gone down this almost like crystal meth path with it. I've never done it. But I've heard people talk about um, modafinil being an, a safer alternative to Adderall, which so, is why I was curious if you'd ever tried it because I've not tried the other one. I only yeah. know modafinil and it works for me if I if I want to go and like organize my iPhoto from like 2014 yeah. to now, you know, and spend six hours, modafinil is great for that. If you want to have empathy and relate to people <laughs> and like have conversations and, you know, be open to a hug, yeah. probably not. Yeah, so so um, my general take on because uh, the thing about like uh, mental health and or trauma healing and or biohacking is it's a you have to take a personalized approach because everyone has a different microbiome makeup, everyone has just different epigenetic expressions, different trauma they've been through, environmental things like everything's like your genomic pathways are different than mine, right? So so it's like what applies for you may or may not work for me, and vice versa. With Adderall, I was on it for a period of time and then I went off of it and I said I'd never go back on it. And when I went to get my brain scans at the Amen Clinics, I was talking to Dr. Faber and we tried many different things. We tried Wellbutrin, we tried lots of things, but they were very clear that like blood flow doesn't get to these areas and like chemical intervention is probably a good idea. And so, and they, they, we got to the point where we said Adderall and I said, no, I'm not doing that shit because the last thing I want to do is like spike up and crash and just have these like peaks and valleys all day long. Like I'm done with that. And Dr. Faber said, well, Mastin, you know, there's a thing now called Adderall XR. Now, this is not an endorsement of it for other people, but this is just my path. I said, what's that? And Adderall XR is, stands for extended release. So you don't get like, like all like high and crazy and shit, right? It's just right. like this. And when I took it the first three or four days, my nervous system had to adjust to it. But now my feeling isn't like, I don't feel like I get high or like it's a rush. I just feel like I'm me. And so it's a different experience That's than awesome. this like, this like, uh, this like uh, peak like, yo, man, we got to like, do some shit, man. Go. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, it's not like that. That's you cool. Know? That's cool to know, man. And I appreciate your perspective because I, I wasn't expecting it. I think a lot of people in the, you know, sort of um, biohacking world 
And people that are really into health view Adderall, they categorize it sort of as like, whoa, that's super dangerous, super hardcore. That's interesting to well, hear that it they... it is highly misused. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Right? But I mean, like, like college kids use it to, yeah. you know, stay up for three every days Every time I fill my prescription, every time the, ph- the pharmacist looks at me like I am shady. Right. And it's like, and I don't, I don't go like, oh my God, why would you judge me? I go, no, I get it. You know? Right. Um, but you know, I have like, I don't know how many people have gone to the aiming clinics and have like verified brain scans of multiple traumatic brain injuries and three forms of ADHD, but that's why I take it. And I also do all the other stuff to reduce the oxidative stress like right. glutathione right. because I understand what it, that, what I understand what it does that's not good as well. Um, so, you know, it's, it's a very, it's a managed process with my psychiatrist from aiming clinics and my functional medicine doctor on a monthly basis. That's cool. Yeah. Smart way to do it. And I love that you said that we're all so unique. I mean, I, I hesitate to ever recommend things in the health realm because what works for me doesn't work for someone else. I mean, even modafinil, like people ask me about it all the time and I think I even have it linked on my site or have at different points. You know, you have to use Bitcoin and like get it from India. <laughs> you know, it's, it's kind of funky, but I love it in for certain applications. But I always tell people like it comes in 200 milligram tablets. Like I'm like, start with a half of a quarter, yeah. you know, and like just see what happens. Cause I've had friends that have taken a whole one just right out of the package <laughs> oh and they're God. like, I felt nothing. And I'm like, what? I would jump off a fucking building if I took a whole modafinil. 200 milligrams and other people take a quarter and they're like, oh my God, I feel like I shot crystal meth in my jugular, you know? So it's like, it just goes to show with, you know, there's uh, the body and the mind are very sensitive. Oh, and unique. And without guidance, like what you're doing, I mean, you're kind of, you know, it's a little potentially risky. risky. Well, and so here's the best productivity hack ever. You want to know what it is? Get sleep? Well, yes. But even more than that, like everyone thinks about productivity and hacking about hacking in the context of like, they're an island. I'm going to do it myself. But literally learning how to ask for help and receive help and not do it all by yourself <laughs> is way better than like taking all this drugs to like get more shit done by yourself. Right. You know, because I can accomplish far more with a team than I can by myself. Right. So there's this new smart drug called, called the delegator. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or, or teamwork or like, or like right. from a trauma informed perspective, a lot of people, when they go to be an entrepreneur or, you know, a biohacker or whatever, they got some signal that the world's not going to meet my needs. So I have to take care of stuff. And that's awesome because they're like, I'm empowered and it can become maladaptive if they're not able to receive help when it's appropriate. You know? And so a lot of people operate as these like islands and they think that if I just biohack myself enough, I can be the most productive person to do it all by myself. When if you had like three or four people that you trusted that could like pitch and catch and receive with you and like you could trust them and they could like implement. 80% or 40 or 70% as good as you and you could like work together and have psychological safety like that's also kind of a cool biohack too because we're not built to be islands we're built to be social creatures you know so that's another way that I get more stuff done is by having teamwork you know which is uh you know it's, it's hard for an avoidant person like me to like accept help because I'm like no one's going to help me no one ever did but I'm learning that that's not entirely the case you know awesome uh okay I want to get into, I want to go and dive into the deep end of the pool here. Okay, so you've got what we might call more acute trauma, right? Say somebody was, you know, beaten as a kid or they were molested, they were raped, um, you know, their parents left them on a fucking street corner, hardcore abandonment, adoption, those types of things. And to me, like, it's always made sense that when something like that happens to someone, that there's going to be a reaction where they become 
you know, on the on the uh, the worst case scenario, a sociopath or psychotic. Uh, at the very least, maybe they do self harm. They get into addictions, compulsions, and things like that. But having been someone who suffered some pretty hardcore trauma as a kid on multiple levels, um, my route of um, self medicating was just street drugs. Like boom, street drugs and rock and roll. I was good for a while. Yeah. You know, it, oh, yeah. really, I really was I like, you. I'm always so grateful that I became a drug addict and people think I'm nuts, but that shit saved me because that was the only intervention that was available. As I got into addiction recovery, what was astonishing to me, and I still don't totally have my head around it. I have a feeling you're going to be able to uh, unpack this a bit for us, but as I have, you know, buddies in recovery that were just as bad of a junkie as I was and they were like the golden child in the family and you know their parents were there for them and hugged them and loved them and you know gave them positive reinforcement and they went to great schools and they had money and no one molested them and they didn't have any of the shit happen to them that happened to me or some of my fellows so as you described your trauma as a kid which wasn't you know intentional by your parents there was just a dynamic that was created mm-hmm. and that manifested as trauma for you what are some of the other sort of degrees of trauma and does the severity and the degree really affect the impact that it has on our life and the yeah. patterns that we develop later yeah, on? That's a really good question. Um, so let me first uh, define what trauma, emotional trauma is. Cool. So physical trauma is when you have like a cut, right? Um, you know, you know, cause of death, blunt force trauma, right? That usually means that like you're hitting the head with a bat really hard or something like that. Um, so emotional trauma is actually a disconnection from safety emotionally and psychologically. That's what it is. And so when you think about someone who has been uh, abused, you think about someone who's been in a war and witnessed violence, um, you think uh, on the surface, and what I thought was that was the trauma, like what happened. And what I've learned after studying uh, a lot of research papers and going really deep into all the experts in the field of trauma is that what's most traumatizing for people isn't this specific event, but what happens afterwards. Meaning, did you hold it in isolation by yourself? Um, Did your peer group or your family put it under the rug and pretend like it never happened? Um, Was there an empathetic witness that could understand what you went through? Uh, Was there a secure attachment before? What was your emotional resilience before it happened? Right? And what's so fascinating is that when you get into... um, you know, working with people who have trauma, which is, by the way, every human, okay? It's not like there's like these traumatized fuckers over here and then everybody else. Like everybody has trauma. Different things happen to different people. When you look at people who have like post-traumatic growth, as an example, right? Versus post-traumatic stress, there's usually in a post-traumatic growth situation, there's a secure attachment and emotional resilience usually beforehand. After a traumatic experience, there's empathy, connection, afterwards and acceptance afterwards as well so that there's psychological and emotional safety on both sides of an event. So what's really interesting is that it's not so much what someone what happened to somebody but how resilient were they going into it and then how much recovery and connection was there afterwards. So think of it in in terms of like if you were at the gym and uh, you're like all right I'm going to go bench press 400 pounds and you don't have any muscle and you like do <laughs> you just like you're like, oh, I'm so traumatized, right? And then like nobody cared and nobody noticed that you were there and you're like, oh, and you're like, just like trying to get it off yourself. And then like you never went to the doctor and like your parents are like, oh, that's not a, you know, your, your chest isn't ripped open. That's, that's fake. You know, that's not real. We don't talk about that in this family. That would be a little bit of a different experience than if you were Arnold Schwarzenegger in his prime 
trying to do a personal record and then you tore a pec and you went to the doctor immediately and then you were able to course correct it, have some recovery and then get back out there, right? So like it's easy to understand physical muscle because we can see it, but emotional muscle is a thing too. And so it's about how much emotional resilience you have beforehand. And then afterwards, was there an empathetic witness? Were you able to talk about your story? Were you believed? Were you listened to? And one of the things that's often overlooked in uh, the work of Dr. Viktor Frankl, who was in Auschwitz and lost most of his family and talks about logotherapy and his famous line between stimulus and response is a choice, right? People talk about, oh, it's, it's your meaning. Make your meaning. It's man's search for meaning. Meaning, 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 meaning. The big pe- part that people overlook is, is that as messed up as Auschwitz was, which by the way, wasn't even the worst camp out there. There were worse camps in Auschwitz, believe it or not, which I couldn't believe. But what, what helped people get through Auschwitz wasn't just their meaning, it was that they were together. They weren't isolated. Right. Right. And that's the part that's overlooked because right. in the personal development space, it's like, I got it. I'm going to love myself. It's all about me and my isolation, <laughs> my island, right? Because people and out there also, are going to meet my needs. This also describes why 12, the 12-step movement is largely very effective in treating uh, addictions and well, what's what's know, effective issues. about twelve step like the the sense of community that's and support the most there. effective part the right empathy, so yeah you know when Jesus said in the Bible where two or three are gathered there I am in their midst and you know uh, they talk about the twelve step the sort of the you know the higher power speaks through the consciousness of the group right so like that's what's so healing about it the twelve steps in and of themselves are important um, there is an acknowledgement of trauma in that and I'm a big believer that uh, affirming that you are an addict uh, when you have acute addiction is a very important step. Afterwards, it's limiting because you're so much more than that. And so the pathways are still there, but you can't just walk around always saying, I'm an addict because what you put after I am is very powerful stuff. Right. You so, know, it's funny, dude. I, I just have to touch on this. And there's, it's talking to someone that I relate to so much is difficult as an interviewer <laughs> because it always just becomes a conversation. But I just, I like, I have to interject at certain points. There's so many touch points, okay, but go for it. Okay. I've always, I wouldn't say struggled, but I have pondered that as being someone who has been a bona fide alcoholic. I mean, I, it's not a limiting belief. I know what happens when I drink alcohol. I end up in fucking jail, you know? Yeah. I, I don't know where I'm going to end up, but it gets really gnarly, right? So, you know, of course, when I sobered up at 26, I sought out help and they said, well, the key to you stopping this, Luke, you 26-year-old little punk is you have to admit that you're an alcoholic. And I was like, I'm in, no problem. I'm Luke, I'm an alcoholic, right? But at a certain point, you know, fast forward 22 years later, um, I it's not like I'm trying to get to the point where I can go have a few beers. I'm totally, I love not drinking. It's not something I desire yeah. to ever learn how to control or anything. I'm, it's just in this lifetime, I'm done with that. Maybe next lifetime, I'll be a wine connoisseur. <laughs> yeah. We'll see. I'll be a whiskey distiller and I'll live the dream and I won't have a drinking <laughs> problem. It'll be amazing. I'll do Coke on the weekends. <laughs> but um, for now, you know, it is funny sometimes if I identify myself like I'm Luke, I'm an alcoholic. It's like, well, no, I'm not. I'm a spiritual being having a human experience. And is it then reinforcing, you know, this idea that I'm somehow limited or is it just reinforcing the humility to say, hey, listen, I'm licked. This thing beat me and keeping me in the awareness of that humility that I've had to accept a certain part of myself sure. that I react to alcohol differently than a person who is not an alcoholic and yeah. doesn't have that disorder, disease or whatever it is. It's, yeah, the, the, the thing when you start It's like about, an NLP thing kind of, kind, you know? Yeah, it's, I mean, it's context, It's right? tricky, yeah. Well, and here's the thing, right? So when you start talking about 12-step and, and, and maybe shortcomings of 12-step, uh, it's like a can of worms because it saves so many lives. But if you look at the success rate of 12 steps, depending on the data, because it's, it's anonymous, so you can't get real data, but it's between 5 and 24%. 
successful. Okay, which means like on an A plus scale, it's an F. Now, it saved millions of lives. And Bill W. is a pioneer and next to Jesus is probably the most influential person in personal development in terms of how many lives he's impacted and touched to this day. And I have massive respect. And when it came out in the 20s and 30s, there were things that we didn't know. You know, uh, there's a lot we didn't know. I mean, just in the last 20 years, so much we've learned about neuroscience and the, since the human genome has been mapped, I mean, we're just learning new stuff all the time, every day. And so it's not that the 12 steps aren't enough or they're broken. It's just if personal development and healing is like a buffet, that's kind of like the butter lettuce. We need it if we're going to make a salad, but it's not everything. And we're learning new things every day. And so the, the thing that I think is important is that when it comes to healing is everything's a spectrum in life, right? And so like when you have acute alcoholic behavior where your life is unmanageable, right? It is vital to say, yeah, I'm an alcoholic. But 20, 30 years later, you can say something like, I'm susceptible to addiction. I, I say I experience addiction from time to time. Right, so I am acknowledging it, and those pathways never die. The neural pathways of addiction never die, but you can build new ones. But they atrophy, but they're still there, which is why someone like Philip Seymour Hoffman can be sober for two decades and then overdose. Right, so you absolutely want to be aware of that. And the identity shift from "I am" to "I experience" is very different because you are more than an addict. Right, the most important part of a healing process is first to get to a place where if I'm a trauma. Uh, if I'm experiencing trauma and I'm a, now I'm a survivor, which is like an epic journey to survive trauma, right? Addiction. Now I'm an addict. Okay. That's an epic journey to just step one, right? How many, how many people are so egotistical they can never admit they're powerless, right? So like that's a huge moment and a big step. And you get to the end of the 12 steps and then the goal is to remain conscious contact and then spread the word. And as a survivor, the goal is to help other people hopefully do the same thing. But there's another level. And the next level beyond survivor is, yes, I am a survivor of trauma. And instead of having that be my identity, I'm going to recognize that that's a trauma that I went through. And I'm more than that. And it's so scary to let go of that identity. And it shouldn't happen right away. You can't just take someone who has domestic abuse yesterday at the worst day of their life and go, come on, get beyond it. Like, don't be a victim. Like, that doesn't work. It's wrong. It's not compassionate. It's not trauma-informed. But at some point, being a survivor is an identity that you get certainty from and connection from, but you're more. Who you are at a soul level is so much more than being a survivor of trauma. And it's very hard to let go of that identity for all the reasons that we're discussing. And it's super important because then you can say, you know what? Yes, I'm, a, I'm someone who has survived trauma, but my identity is a soul. My identity is someone who adds tremendous value. And what I went through informs who I am today but it's not who I am today because I've maintained a certain level of healing. And so you want to make sure that that concept is present. You want to make sure that you're vigilant, but not hypervigilant once you get to a certain level. And that, you know, if Philip Seymour Hoffman had maybe had that, it'd be different because the other problem with only white knuckling is that you're missing the whole purpose of addiction in the first place because addiction is a solution to a problem, right? So when I was addicted to cocaine, I lacked dopamine, right? I lacked all kinds of things that weren't there. So the other thing you have to do is also then start to supplement what's needed and necessary because addiction shouldn't come with all this shame. It's someone who's trying to find a solution, a solution to an attachment figure because maybe nobody was there, but this was always there for me. Not like my mom and dad, as an example, like this is always here. Alcohol, always there for me. I can count on it, right? So you have to understand that there's actually like underneath like what could be like bad behavior is stuff that starts to make a lot of sense. Like, huh, that actually served me in a sense. And, and you, like you said, it was the best thing that ever happened to me. 
because there was something that was there for you that you could count on. And at some point, it became maladaptive and you wanted to upgrade. So it's, an, it's a very nuanced conversation. It has to happen at the right time. And the last thing you want to do is take someone who's in acute trauma or addiction and say, don't be a victim. Super insensitive. But at some point, you have to realize that you're more than what happened to you. But that's, that's, a, that's, a, that's, a, that, that's a time and a place where someone gets to decide on their own. That's not yeah. something they should do. Someone should force it on somebody. I, I mean, that makes perfect sense to me. Uh, having been someone that's, you know, as I said, been sober for a while now um, and realizing early on that, <clears throat> that that was just, you know, say the drinking and the drugs, which when you're in the throes of it, it seems to be that all your problems are a result of your inability to control your drinking and using, right? And so... You think, okay, finally I've had it. I admit it, I'm beat. And you have that surrender moment, which is what happened for me. And I'm like, I naively thought if I just got rid of the drugs and alcohol that I'd be a fucking awesome guy. And I'd be happy and everyone would love me. You know, it's like, everyone loves me. It's just this behavior that's, you know, and the repercussions and consequences of that behavior uh, that is what's causing all my problems. And then you take that away thinking that's going to be it. And then you're like, oh shit, I'm a fucking train wreck. Without that stuff, it was actually my solution. And that was my experience. It's like, okay, now how do I cope with the trauma that I didn't even know how to contextualize or even identify, of course, at the time. But it's been now, uh, you know, many, many years of unpacking all of those early life experiences and finding other healthy means by which to deal with them, which is why we're having this conversation. Totally. Yeah. You know, it's like, well, what really happened to me? And what's, what's an alternative way to um, deal with uncomfortable sensations, feelings, emotions, thoughts that I have as a human being um, that don't have those kind of consequences. And I think a lot of people that are in recovery and perhaps why the reported success rate is relatively low is because there's a misconception that drugs and alcohol are your problem. Exactly. And then if you stop that, you're good to go. And that's just not true at all. Not that's the case. Jacks for openers. Just getting physically sober is... The only purpose of that, to me, is to work on sexual sobriety, emotional sobriety, financial sobriety. I mean, just to contextualize it in those terms, right? To look at all of these different other areas of my, uh, my behavior and the way that I'm interfacing with reality and to applying those same spiritual principles to all those different areas kind of systematically. And that's what my experience has been to where it gets to the point that you feel fulfilled, happy, relatively comfortable so that the idea of like, you know what, maybe I should go drink a bottle of vodka just never sounds like a good idea. Totally. Because things never get that bad. There's always, you know, today I was sort of struggling with some thoughts and I called um, my meditation teacher, my mentor, um, Jeff Kober. And I said, hey, these are the thoughts rattling around in my head. What do you think? And he was like, uh, those are your ego, dude. Don't listen to that shit. That is all fake news. And I was like, oh, okay, I'm good. Now, if I didn't have that tool and have a mentor and have a guide like that, then maybe I go, you know what? I should probably just smoke crack. I don't feel very comfortable <laughs> today, you know? Yeah. Um, and one last thing I wanted to sort of add, this is a, a commentary on the <laughs> efficacy of the, you know, the 12-step groups and the movements, um, because I've studied the history of it a lot and even pre-history of AA, what, you know, the different modalities and religious approaches that were available, which were largely ineffective, um, it's interesting if you look at the success statistics, um, the program used to be much more successful in the beginning. And my theory is that because no one ended up in a program like AA unless they were really, really low bottom. And so the uh, level of surrender totally. generally was much higher if someone walked into a dingy ass church basement with a bunch <laughs> of dirty old men in fucking trench coats that yeah. were like street alcoholics. 
you had to be like at the end of the line where now, you know, people are like, I don't know, maybe I'm having a little too much Chardonnay every couple of weeks. I should go into a rehab, <laughs> you know? So they're not yeah. surrendered. They come in and they don't have, they don't have the dedication and the fervor to that spiritual way of life that's required for it to work. You know, in my case, I was like so beat down. There was no um, defiance left in me. Right. You know, yep. I walked into rehab and they were like, here's what you fucking do, kid. And I was like, I'm in. Yep. You say jump, you say jump, I say how high. And I've been like that ever since. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there's been moments where I took my will back, I guess sure. you could say. But um, I think that's why it's not effective for some people because they're just not done. They're still too defiant. Their ego still is still too robust. Yeah, for them to surrender their life to God, which is what's really required. Um, it's most, hard in most cases to overcome addiction. Yeah, it's hard. It's um, you know the higher power of your understanding is a really good concept, and I think I think that the, the the at least when you when you think of it from the context of trauma, a lot of the ways that like personal development or spiritual material is viewed um, changes. And what I mean by that is is like let's talk let's talk about for example the thoughts that you mentioned around I'm having these thoughts today, right? And we call our meditation teacher. And a meditation teacher says, hey, man, that's fake news. And you want to let those pass, right? So that, that's a better solution than smoking crack, right? So, <laughs> so like, better, like yes. way better, right? Yeah. And the next level is to understand like, hey, why are those thoughts there in the first place? There's a reason and a purpose that they're there. And if you actually trace those thoughts back, like for example, an inner critic thought, right? I'm not enough. I'm a piece of shit, whatever it might be, right? A lot of people say like, ignore your inner critic, right? But that's called dissociation. And so what you want to do is you want to follow it. And you want to say, okay, why do you feel like you're a piece of shit? Well, because yesterday uh, I wanted to smoke crack. I'm just making something up. Okay, well, why does that yesterday? Well, I was kind of feeling alone yesterday. Why are you feeling alone yesterday? Well, because I don't know, something happened and you know, uh, there's a, uh, I don't know, somebody died. I have no idea. Something happened. And I'm feeling alone and that's my normal coping. Well, what's so hard about being alone? Well, I'm not used to being alone. Well, what does it feel like to be alone for you? It feels terrifying. Okay, well, why does it feel terrifying? Well, because uh, I had this experience in my past of always being alone and overcoming for me. Well, why did you want somebody to come for you? Well, I want someone to come and acknowledge me because I, I actually want connection. And you're like, oh, so if you trace it all the way down, like you want connection. Interesting. Well, what kind of connection were you hoping for back then? I just want someone to reach for me, right? Well, what would have to happen for someone to reach for you? Why does one like check in on me or just I want to acknowledge that I'm feeling this way and have that be okay and not to suppress it? And then all of a sudden you start to realize like these like cravings or these voices have an actual weird, like in a weird way, a purpose to get you back to what you want originally. And it's like an old voice that kind of says, just do it this way. Right. So it's like on the one hand, I have these thoughts that uh, I may be this uncomfortable with. But what's interesting is what solved the problem wasn't him telling you it's fake news, probably. It's you actually connecting with him. Like that connection is what probably I would imagine, I don't know your history too much, yeah, yeah. but that's probably more healing than the acknowledgement of pushing him away. Because what happens, unfortunately, in the spiritual community far too often is spiritual practice becomes a way to deny trauma and dissociate from trauma. And I know how dissociated somebody is by how much they use the uh, third party or third person languaging. Like we, us, they, like if they only hang, like we are experiencing the equinox vortex and we together are on a mission so that they can this and we can that. And like, it's like, whoa, let's talk about your trauma, right? If you get in the second person, like you, maybe a little less dissociated, but when you get into I, I am feeling this way, it's very different. 
And so um, from a trauma-informed perspective, especially like limiting beliefs, like I don't believe in limiting beliefs. That's not really what happens. A limiting belief, think about it. Oh, it's a limiting belief. Well, why would you have that in the first place? Well, actually, if I go back in my history enough, that belief kept me alive. It kept me safe. So it's a survival belief. And the next level of abundance for you may not be changing a limiting belief. It might be actually realizing that you can feel safe receiving more, which never happened before. And so it's a reframing of a lot of the sort of common lexicon words and vocabulary that we've used for a long time in spirituality and personal development as a collective to realize every person, uh, every behavior, every thought, all of it has a purpose. And that's my sort of my big belief is that like every diagnosis, every maladaptive thought, all of it has a purpose. And if you real, if you can actually, instead of ignoring it, trace it back to where it is coming from and then meet the need, it's very simple. If you're hungry, you can understand the biochemistry of hunger. You can understand what happens to leptin levels and ghrelin levels and insulin levels and blood sugar levels and how long they would last. You can understand hydration processes and, you know, What's the rate of dehydration based on the current environment? And okay, we're going to have a predictive model of dehydration and ghrelin and hunger. And the dehydration will last, will go faster than the hunger. So here's the model of how long we have, all that stuff. Or if you're like, hey, here's some food. <laughs> and you're like, oh, I feel so much better, right? So we can spend all this time just sort of like trying to understand a process, which is important. But the fastest way to heal trauma is to trace those thoughts identify the need that's missing and then understand how to get those needs met in a way that suits you today. And so I am not fast to pathologize or ignore thoughts that my clients have. It's more about like, hey, how'd that thought serve you? And what's the need it's trying to meet? And then if we can help you meet that need, you're going to be good long-term because we're going to give your brain and that addiction part of you a better solution. Because if you give something someone a better solution, they don't want the old solution anymore. But if you just beat them down and say, well, that's a bad solution and white knuckle it or ignore it, well, that's why they're going to go back, right? Because it's like that was their dependable friend. So it's more about building healthier attachments and understanding what you need. And that's harder to do because it's, it's a, it's, it, those, those models are emerging, right? So dissociation is good. That's like, I call that like high level coping, right? So low level coping is like heroin and crack, right? Uh, high level coping is like Kundalini yoga and kale but I'm going to put my thoughts over here. And that's, not, that's, that's a huge improvement. And by the way, I'm talking about myself, okay? The next level is, I'm angry at my partner because she's asking me for help. Why? Well, when I was a child, no one ever came. So I don't believe she's actually going to help me. She, she, must, she must have a selfish interest. I don't fucking trust her. My nervous system is trying to keep me defensive. I'm trying to survive here. That never happened to me. Oh my God, I'm freaking... Oh my God, I'm scared to receive help. Well, why is that? Well, I never got it. And then I can say, hey, honey, I know you're offering help right now, but that's terrifying for me. So can you be a little gentler with me and just know that this is terrifying? And, and no one can do that by themselves. You need a, a coach and a mentor. But that vulnerability is something that people... like. It takes time to get there. So when Brene Brown talks about vulnerability, what she's really talking about is like unwinding those defensive survival patterns, understanding what's underneath it is this vulnerable child who has no clue how to meet their needs or what their needs are and has no clue how to ask for it in a relationship that's meaningful to them because that's terrifying. And that's like the work. That's like the, the, the deeper, deeper work. And it's the hardest work on the planet. We can send somebody to Mars, but we can't do trauma work because people like Elon Musk don't value it. Right. 
Elon Musk says he doesn't talk about his father because there's no value. That's the most valuable thing he could do. Elon, please do not send traumatized people to Mars. We do not need to spread human suffering to another planet. You know? Also, Elon, please do not put 5G satellites in the fucking atmosphere that are pointed down on humanity. Yeah, you totally. evil weirdo. <laughs> like, I just found that out. I'm like, are you serious? I'm moving out of this neighborhood because of the 5G antennas all over. And they're like, yeah, Elon Musk wants to put them up in the atmosphere and just blanket the whole population with it. I'm like, awesome. Like, can't you use your smarts for something productive? We'll be right back at you after this brief but important announcement. If you are a discerning health enthusiast like myself and you want the best of the best, chances are that you've probably sat there and scratched your head at the health food store trying to figure out which CBD product to buy, right? I mean, this has happened to me on multiple occasions. They all make these claims. It does this, it does that, et cetera, et cetera. Everyone says they're the best. Who is actually the best? What actually works? Well, I found something recently that I'm super stoked about. It's called Onda. Now, Onda offers a patented, truly full-spectrum line of products and bulk oil, actually, that's not dependent on the use of alcohol, CO2, or other solvents for extraction. And their CBD is organically grown and produced in the USA. Now, here's the thing. When you take a plant that has medicinal qualities like the hemp or the cannabis plant, right, and you start stripping away all of the turpines and all of the cofactors that make it really a holistic, natural medicine, you end up with something close to a pharmaceutical, right? Now, some pharmaceuticals are great um, in a pinch when everything else has failed. But when it comes to a natural product like CBD oil, you really want the full spectrum of the plant and you don't want a bunch of junk in there when they got the extraction done, right? In other words, when they get the medicine out of the plant, you don't want to be adding poisons to it. So that's why I'm super stoked on Onda. I've been using it for a couple months and I got to tell you, um, I don't have time to go into the benefits and there's legalities, but uh, this product has been amazing for sleep, anxiety, stress. I'm super into it. How you can get your hands on some is as follows. Go to OndaWellness.com. That's O-N-D-A, OndaWellness.com. And what's really exciting is that if you use the code LUKE15, you'll save 15% off. That's Onda Wellness and the discount code is Luke15. Go get your CBD on. And now back to the interview. Why doesn't just going to therapy and talking about your childhood and looking at your wounded inner child and observing those patterns and just talking and talking and talking and getting all those emotions out, pounding pillows with a wiffle bat, like ah, emoting, getting all that stuff out of your body. That doesn't... I mean, I've done all that stuff. I've been to, you know, on site in Nashville a couple of times. I've been done the Hoffman process. I've done all sorts of experiential therapy and all kinds of stuff. Yet I find myself, say, in a relationship, approaching it from um, a, in a completely new way, a more conscious way, perhaps, than before, and find despite going into all that trauma, talking about it, working it out of my body, doing all those things I described, still getting triggered by weird little things and kind of going, just getting befuddled and like, duh, this feels uncomfortable. It must be their fault. Yeah. You know, and it's like, meanwhile, said person is totally innocent, is just being perfect and awesome. Or are they? Yeah. yeah. And then, you know, the mind has sort of created like these stories. And then what, what I've found uh, with, and you know, it's hard to sort of uh, build this into a form, a question out of it, but, it's like what I found is 
the the willingness for me and the courage to just stay open hearted. I think that's like my number one tool I'm really working with right now in my life is just no matter what, I'm not closing. I don't care how scared I am. I don't care how bad anything hurts. I'm just, I'm not closing my heart, right? And so if something like triggers me, I can sort of see, oh, and I can trace back as you were saying like that. But then the next step is communicating that to the other person, which is terrifying because there's preconceived ideas or what you, you know, you said you don't believe in limiting beliefs, but you know, you could, I don't know how else to say it, like the limiting belief, oh, if I expose the mechanism of trauma that I just discovered and the fact that I'm triggered because of that, that this person is going to abandon me, reject me, Mm -hmm. hurt me even more, whatever the case may be. And I've been experimenting a bit with that and actually communicating those things and finding these amazing results where it's like, oh my God, these huge breakthroughs. And all I've done is just like refuse to shut down, refuse to believe the thoughts that my mind is having and just being sort of what feels like suicidal and just going like, you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah. Just like, okay, just go ahead and kill me. Yeah, yeah. Here's what's going yeah. on in my heart and in my mind right yeah, now. This I love is that. what I'm experiencing. It's such a good question. It's a big question. Uh, and by the way, your transparency around that is so beautiful. Um, Thank you. I mean, it's yeah. a 40 part question. Yeah. I'm, I'm trying yeah. to digest. I mean, this is real, real yeah. time stuff. Yeah, yeah, you know? yeah. So I'm trying to digest it because I'm committed to my growth. Yeah. And, and I think by processing these things with guests, the feedback I get from the listeners and viewers is like, oh my God, thank you for bringing this up. I relate. I'm going through the same thing. Thank you for your vulnerability. Yeah. If it yeah. weren't for that, we would shut the recording off and I'd be like, Mastin, bro, Dude, you yeah, got to help yeah, me yeah, out. Yeah. I'm struggling yeah, with this yeah. issue. So I just kind of put it out there. Yeah, it's good. scary to do that, but I think useful on many well, levels. It's all good, man. It's a great question. And I struggle with it myself. Um, you're kind of describing like sort of like kamikaze uh, personal development, yeah, right? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> kind of, right? That's yeah. the word I'm looking for. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, not suicidal, comic Yeah, you're like, I'm going for it. You know, like, yeah. Um, yeah. So, so, um, okay. Uh, I have an answer for your question that will answer it. I'm just trying to think about how to contextualize it for a lay person's brain. Okay. So the first thing you have to understand is that in mental health, mental health practitioners and anyone who loves brain science and worships the brain is focused on the wrong organ. Because the brain is a secondary organ, meaning it's not, it's like a lot of important stuff happens there. But uh, to understand the answer to my question, you have to understand a little bit of neuroscience. Okay. So, what we have to understand is there's these two uh, phenomena in the body one's called affect, and the other's called effect. Okay. So, affect is basically data from the body to the brain. So, you could call it emotional data. You could call it uh, the neurotransmitters that go from the micro, gut microbiome into the brain. Um, and then effect is data from the brain to the body. Okay, so there's this like communication channel. That channel and communication process happens through a, a part of the anatomy called the vagus nerve. So the vagus nerve is the highway that connects the body and the mind. It's a very important um, piece of wiring in the nervous system. And vagus, uh, and not like Las Vegas, because um, you know what they say happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. In this case, what happens in Vegas goes everywhere because this is Vegas, V-A-G-U-S, which is the root word of uh, vagabond, which is kind of goes everywhere. So the vagus nerve connects pretty much all the organs in the nervous system of the body. It has two pieces. One that stops, one doesn't stop. It's one continuous piece. But the, 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 the above diaphragm part of the vagus nerve is myelinated. And what that means is, is that it regulates heart rate variability, right? So you have an aura ring, HRV, it, that's regulated by the, by the um, yeah, it's regulated by, that was on your other finger too recently. Um, it's regulated by the vagus nerve. Your facial expression, right? Signals of safety in your face, regulated by vagal, uh, the, the myelinated part of the vagus nerve. Your vocal tone, all regulated by the myelinated part of the vagus nerve. Below the diaphragm, 
is the non-myelinated part of the vagus nerve. And so what happens is, is that that sort of uh, right here is where that kind of stops at the diaphragm. What happens is, is that this whole uh, uh, <laughs> amazing uh, piece of anatomy is connected to your gut microbiome. It's connected to all your organs. It's regulating all these things. And what we have what now to know is that all of your body is this like threat detecting machine. Okay. So not just your prefrontal cortex and your hippocampus, okay, and your limbic system and your cerebellum, but all the organs in the body are like aware of your environment. Okay. And not just that, the fascia is aware of your environment. Okay. So the neck down is your unconscious mind. Okay. Your body is your unconscious mind. So there's all these decisions that are being made and being sent up the vagus nerve right into the brainstem and the limbic system before you even have a chance to decide. Okay. So if you're, because here's the thing, you don't have time in the wild to determine if some shit's a threat or not. You, you just got to move, right? That's all affect. Okay. And there's 10 times more affect than effect, which means there's 10 times more data coming up from the body than down from the brain. So the brain is like a picture of the body health in a lot of ways. And there's a bidirectional communication that happens. And you know, if you're if you're so if your body is dysregulated, your brain's gonna be dysregulated. So what does that have to do with your question? Everything. Because the expectation that any human being will not get triggered is unrealistic because what happens is... God damn it. I was hoping it was fixable. <laughs> <laughs> well, here, here's how it's fixable. Okay. It is fixable. Okay. What you have to understand is, let's just talk about a relationship for a second, right? So everybody has a person that they're in a relationship with or they were that has a certain tone that when they make that tone, you know, like, uh, I'm going to walk on eggshells or things are not good. Or there's a facial expression like, mm -hmm. like there's a certain facial expression Tone and facial expression are signals of safety or danger, right? So reptiles don't have that. It's a mammalian feature. And so what happens is in a relationship, you might something might trigger you before you know your face has been hijacked. So you go from, oh my God, to... And you don't even know what's happened. It's pre-conscious. Your tone changes. And the other person interprets all that with their... It's called neuroception, the perception of the nervous system. They see your facial expression change and your tone change, and then they get all defensive and they get hijacked. And both people are hijacked before they even know what's happening. And then they're into a fight. And then they're blaming each other. Like, well, your face is this. Well, your face is that. I can't see my face. It's my face. Like all this type of stuff. So the, the compassion comes in to understand that when neuroception finds a threat that triggers us, it goes right into the limbic system brainstem right into the hippocampus and, and you get and your and all the functions of the prefrontal cortex get hijacked by the limbic system and all of a sudden you're in fight or flight and you got cortisol and you got adrenaline and your heart rate is up and all that stuff starting to happen right and so that happens without you making a decision i know that is so dude this is so brilliant the way you broke it down because having done a bit of work i know that when i'm triggered it's bullshit it's not bullshit though. Here's why though. Okay. okay. Because in the past, that signal meant danger in the past. Okay. So you have, we have to honor the body. Because here's the thing. The body's response is never bad. It's only adaptive. So the problem is you can't say, oh my God, I'm triggered because it's a false story and whatever. No. In the past, something like that was dangerous. It was hard. And it was scary. And what happens, especially with developmental childhood trauma is that we only realize that a certain part of our personality is acceptable and we isolate part of ourselves, And it's like, it's like exiled. It's, it's away. 
So you start to bring that personality forward, like your creative self or your sober self or a part of you that wants to speak up and take up space and be more confrontational, whatever it might be. Your nervous system will interpret all of that as a threat, not because it's bullshit, but because it used to be really freaking dangerous. And so the acknowledgement and the compassion, talking about compassion, the self-compassion of like, wow, that tone used to mean something or that, that facial expression or that word. A really hard thing for someone to experience who's hard with abandonment is to watch somebody turn away and walk away. That is a disconnection signal. And if you're used to being abandoned and that's like a hard thing for you, like you could, this happens to me. Okay. My girlfriend, love of my life, been together almost a decade. Sometimes all she's doing, okay, literally is going to the kitchen to get a drink and come back. It's not like a fight, it's not a thing. We're like watching the office or something, like it's all good. And my nervous system is like, <gasps> freaks out. I'm like, a part of me is like, she's never coming back because I'm used to someone not coming back for the first 18 years of my life emotionally. So instead of saying that's a false belief, I have compassion for the two year old part of me that never had anyone come back. I go, she's coming back, dude. Right. And if, <laughs> if she comes back and my face is like, what the hell? She just go, what's wrong with you? She's like, and, and a partner should be somewhere where you can go to regulate and calm down. That's what a partner should be. So when you see someone who's activated, you don't go, don't get triggered. You know, you're not doing your meditation right. right. You go, oh my God, they're in their younger self and they're activated. They don't even, not even in control. Okay, my job is to regulate my tone, set signals of safety, face this person, co-regulate with them in a safe way and help them regulate right? because they're triggered. And when you understand this, all of a sudden you have a lot more self-compassion for yourself and the sort of cosmic irony in relationships is that Whatever someone like a part, you have two partners that come together. Part of the attraction is like the other person has your missing piece, which means most of the time, not always, but most of the time, their trauma is opposite of yours. So whatever triggers you for them is like no big deal. And whatever triggers them for you is no big deal. And you almost minimize it in a lot of ways. And, um, and, and then you trigger each other in opposite ways. So, so you, so the opportunity in a relationship isn't I can't get triggered. It's like holy cow, the trigger is my yoga class today. Like I need to have more emotional flexibility and self compassion and realize I have my five year old self coming up right now that's used to people leaving. So I'm not going to minimize it and call it fake news. I'm going to say, all right, man, I feel you. Thank you. Let me tell you something. This is a reparenting process. She's not going anywhere. She's just going to the kitchen to get a drink. You're all good. Breathe through it. it. takes 90 seconds to two minutes for the energy and the emotion to pass through the body biochemically if it doesn't get re-triggered again and then to self-regulate again. And the most important piece in relationship, just like in building muscle in the gym, is that's like a micro-trauma when you have that disconnection. The recovery... Uh, muscle is built when you recover. So you talk to Aubrey Marcus, right? He goes and crushes it with his gorilla kettlebell, right? So he'll rip his muscle apart and he'll have micro-trauma. And then when he sleeps, that's when the muscle's built, right? Same for you or me. So the healing, like you're talking about, why do I do all this stuff, Hoffman and stuff, and then it still happens? Because the healing happens in the relationship, not in the seminar. Oh. The seminar makes it possible for you to react differently in the relationship. But the relationship is the gym. The relationship is the seminar. And you can't do it by yourself, which is why the self-love revolution is awesome, but it's incomplete. Because people want to be islands, not getting triggered, right? Versus like, actually, <laughs> how good are you at repairing with somebody? And so the process is more about repair. And the faster you can repair in a relationship, that's a sign of a healthy relationship. It's not the expectation that you're not going to 
like get into it. I had, I had a friend of mine. We've never had an argument in 10 years. I'm like we probably haven't had sex in 10 years either. <laughs> right. Right. So it's like, that's like, wow, you've been really good dissociation for a whole decade versus stuff's going to come up and we're going to have some safety in how we repair. And the more that you can understand your partner's context and what they, what triggers them, you don't want to be like, well, you need to work on that. You want to create an environment where it's less triggering. Right. You want to notice and be more self aware of your own process and be less triggering for them. Right. So, so, so that's the, that's the, next level. And it, what I'm talking about is really hard. It's like, it's like personal development, interpersonal Olympics. You know, it's like, it's like the Navy SEALs of relationships. It's rare air. Well, it, may, it makes perfect sense. And I've experienced a little bit of it lately. I always, <laughs> I'm learning how to have uh, boundaries and respect anonymity in the context of my show because it's so personal, you know, but you don't want to implicate other people. So I'll just say that I have had experiences recently where things have come up. The process that you just described happens. And then I do the kamikaze unthinkable that goes against every freaking bone in my body, which is to actually disclose what's going on inside and just say, okay, cool. I'm definitely going to get hurt or abandoned or rejected or hated or whatever. Here's me right now as this seeming emotional mess. (laughs) And it's been very well received and communication has happened and hearts have opened and that connection's back and it's like instantly healed that particular situation and that triggering just gets unfolded in a way that no yoga class, no calling the mentor, no book, no like Pema Chodron, you know, podcast, whatever, like (laughs) the regular go-to shit that I would use or drugs and alcohol, um, whatever coping mechanism. It's just like, oh, I just actually needed to just be open and honest and real and vulnerable. About the hard stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's right. In, but communicating it kind of in real time and just going like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm saying this right now. I feel like such a douche <laughs> and such a loser. Um, I'm definitely, this is definitely going to backfire. And then when it doesn't, it's just like, wait, what just happened? Everything's so beautiful now. Yeah. And there's this breakthrough for me, you know? And that, that, so what you've done is you've talked about a vulnerable part of yourself, which is really hard to do. Okay, it's very hard. Oh my God, okay. it's the worst. And all of the automatic survival responses in your body where that hasn't been safe to disclose before are giving you their normal biological mammalian response warning of, hey bro, this is going to kill you because it did before. So mm-hmm. it's a valid response in a lot of ways. And then the courageous part of you is saying, I'm going to try this anyway because I'm pretty sure I made a good choice in who I'm with and I'm going to self-disclose and then it's going to be received with an empathetic witness and then connection gets to be restored. And that's what healing is. And that's what healing trauma is, is when in those moments, you're able to connect and heal in relationship. Not, not. I mean, look, I'm not against personal development stuff. I'm not against it, right? But it's like to apply it, it has to be applied in relationship. So when people say to me, Master, I did my trauma work. I'm like, you didn't do your trauma work. You made a list of your traumas. <laughs> trauma work is in relationship where you're like, hey, here's the most terrified part of me. You didn't leave. And then there's another part. It's like, shit, they didn't leave. Now what? <laughs> right. Right. You know, and that's a whole other issue. And so when two people have those mutually shared contexts between each other, that's a rare air, really sacred relationship. And it's what has to happen more and more because, you know, the standard personal development message is you have to self-regulate. You have to do it on your own. I'm so great. And same thing with mental health, right? Mental health is... The, me- the mental health message is self-regulate your emotions or we will medicate you. 
But that's not how we're built. We're built for connection. The brain is a social organ, right? And so the way we're actually wired is to co-regulate together where we're like, you know, like what you just shared and like create those secure attachments. And when we have those secure attachments in in relationship, then we can self-regulate, right? But without that, it's not going to happen. That's so true. That's so true because that sort of self-analysis and unpacking, you know, all of the triggers and the origins of the triggers only gets you to a certain point. You know, it's it's really true. There's uh, definitely limits to what you can do on your own. What it's the warm up for the work, right? Wow, <laughs> this is so mind blowing. I'm so. I mean, you see me getting uh, um, emotional here. It's I like, did see a cinematic response. Yeah, I was <laughs> yeah. I was going to push it because we're recording. It's so. all good. I <laughs> I I'm a basket case on my show all the time, uh, and I love it. It's it's a very freeing to just let it out, but. You know, I'm going through a real healing process right now of for the first time really exploring some of these things that you're talking about, you know, in the context of relationship and just I've had so many sort of preconceived ideas. I think a lot of it has to do with just being a man and just stuff you pick up from other men who are misinformed or limited in their perspective and their emotional availability that it's like, this is the shit you talk about with the homies. <laughs> you don't ever tell her what's going on in your mind. Like, are you crazy? She'll definitely leave you. You yeah. know, I mean, that's really like the kind of framework that I'm bringing to the table because in many of the cases. history, right? So, so I have an equation that describes all mental health, all behavior. You want to know what it is? What? It's H plus E equals B. Okay. So, history plus environment equals behavior. Right. And so you're, you have to take your history into context, your current environment into context, and that will produce a behavior. Right. And so I'll give you a really extreme example. Okay. So Adam Lanza, right, who was the guy who uh, shot up a Sandy Hook school horribly. Right. How could he possibly do it? Simple. He had emotional withdrawal from his mother who was giving her presence to children. And so because he felt so neglected for so long, killed her and the kids that she cared about. Because he was so defiant and angry. Okay, now that doesn't excuse it. It's horrible. But all of a sudden, it creates a different context, right? And then now let's flip over to Harry Potter, okay? If you look at J.K. Rowling's discussions around Harry Potter, the only difference between Harry Potter and Voldemort, he who shan't be named, right? Is that Harry had the love of his mother. Voldemort never had a loving mother. There was never that secure attachment that was created that physical proximity and presence and responsiveness that when I cry out, my needs are going to get met. And the more that someone learns that when I cry out, my needs won't get met, all of these emergent maladaptive properties start to emerge. Right? So that's how you get sociopaths and psychological pathology. That's how you start to get uh, you know, uh, narcissism and all those things is because it's chronic onset neglect manifested in major defiance and violence. So it's not excusing it, but we have to understand how all this works, which is why I'm hopeful that these things can start to be reversed in a lot of ways. And so when that's happening in a relationship, you have to take your history into account, right? So, and by the way, if you're abusing somebody or hurting them, it's not an excuse. You should go to jail, right? And there's certain values that should be... like It's time for misogyny and racism and xenophobia and all those things to be over. Like Those values should die now. And for them to die, we have to understand that both sides have these things. There's history and trauma on both sides. And that doesn't justify it, right? But it helps us understand it. So when you go to a girl and you say, oh my God, if I share this part of myself with her, she'll leave. That's because your history informs you that's true, right? And I'm going to try something different in this context and see what happens. 
And, and that's where that leap of faith, making sure you made the right selection can be very healing. Right. And I guess that's a way to find out if you made an inappropriate selection, if your potential partner or partner uh, is unable to receive you in that way. And that's it right. is like, oh yeah, no, I don't, whatever you are, I'm not into it then. Well, obviously that's an indicator that they're not for you. That's right. right. So, oh my God, I'll so, never have a love like that again. Thank God. Right. You know? <laughs> Thank God. So, so in a, in a sense, it's it's actually it's, and I always you know go back to my male logical brain. Um, even though I'm definitely an emotional person, but it's it's actually there is no risk in it. The risk is that you're going to find out like, wow, I'm not I'm with someone who's just not in the same space as me and is unable to communicate about the things that I find it necessary to communicate about. And isn't at the same place in their life where they're willing to work through these things individually on their own, work through mine and work through in the, in the context of a relationship. So what great news to find out? Well, it depends on what part of you we're talking to, right? So we, have, we all have so many parts, right? Yeah. So if I'm talking to the logical, adult, mature, spiritual, integrated male part of you that's like able to frame it that way, yes. <laughs> But in the moment, I'm probably talking to the five-year-old part of you. It's like, don't leave me. Of course. Right? And so we have to be able to have a conversation between those two pieces and allow them to integrate. And it's really hard to do. Right? Um, But when when you can identify... Because here's what happens. The nervous system is so tricky. People come to me and try to get into touch with that type of stuff. Right? And we find out like what the five-year-old believes. Oh my God, I believe every time I'm vulnerable that I'll be left. But then the conscious mind interjects. That's ridiculous. That makes no sense. It's because this other thing happens. Well, we can only let one part of you talk at a time because you'll actually block your growth if you start to access those old beliefs and then let your current consciousness start to kind of de-justify them versus following them and understanding what do you actually need and letting one voice speak at a time. So you're absolutely right. In reality, there's zero risk. It's more like filtering. It's like a job interview. It's like, oh, definitely not qualified. But there's also a part of you that's like, and me too, that's like, but they're going to leave again and both have to be tended to. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, you get a break. Right. 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 Because it's, it's like to just try and sort of be the kid whistling in the dark, passing the graveyard and going, no, it's all going to work out fine. Like it doesn't matter if they leave because they're just, they weren't the right one then. I mean, it's like that's only can happen on an intellectual level, but you still have that core, especially if it's someone that you've been with for a long time and there's that core attachment and you've, you know, pair bonded. It's very and, hard. You know, you can't just talk yourself into thinking that it's a positive outcome when, you know, your as you said, your whole nervous system, limbic system is going, no, it's not. You're going to die if they're gone or whatever. Um, I find it really interesting too, what you were saying about how it's not the original trauma, but the reception that we had immediately afterward. And if there was someone holding space for that, and if we were, um, you know, I forget how you stated it, but I was thinking back to my first, you know, memorable, um, noticeable trauma as a kid. And it wasn't, when it was happening, it wasn't necessarily scary or, you know, I didn't know that I was being hurt, but I also didn't know how to express it. And so from, you know, five, six years old until 14, I never told a fucking soul. That's hard. Holding something like that for that long is really hard. I interviewed a guy named um, Shaman Durek and we were I don't know if it was on his show or my show, one of our, we kind of did two back-to-backs, but we were talking about this particular abuse and he just, he doesn't, he gives zero Fs about what he talks about on the mic. He was like, just went right into it. And I was like, okay, we're going here. And we went into it a bit and he was sort of framing like the actual experience of the abuse as 
not necessarily negative and that the perpetrator wasn't necessarily evil, that it was just an experience, an experience between two people. And in a sense, like I forget the way he said it, but almost like a shared intimacy or something like that. Right. Sexual abuse is what I'm speaking about. I might as well just cut to the chase. Mm-hmm. And yeah, maybe because it wasn't particularly traumatic, I wasn't beat up. There wasn't violent or anything like that. It was just on one level, I knew that this is not normal and I was old enough to know like, this isn't something people are doing and talking about. So I better just like squelch this and didn't have an environment or wasn't aware that I had the environment where I could process that and go to my mom or go to my dad and be like, hey, guess what happened with the babysitter last weekend? Kind of weird, huh? There was none of that. It was just like, uh-oh, I'm, I'm unworthy, the shame, the secrets, then all of the you know, hiding other things and all my behavior that started to manifest. And the reaction to that is just so clear for me to see at this point, you know, started being violent and just doing all kinds of crazy, wacky stuff for a kid that age. And um, that was my reaction to it because I didn't know how to process it. So what you're saying is that it's like, yeah, there's the original trauma, but then there's the the trauma from five years old to 14 of holding that and not knowing what to do with that. And yeah. having something so psychologically burdensome that I'm just like trying to juggle that. Yeah. So I'm going to respond separate differently than the other person did Yeah. for a moment because uh, every experience can be viewed from different places. And, and if you deny the first step, then the rest of them are ineffective. So I wanted to say, I'm so sorry you had to go through that. It's a really hard thing to go through. It's a hard thing to hold by yourself. And it's something that no child should ever go through, ever. Because children are vulnerable and um, you're coping. And the way that you, the resilience that you've shown is, is, uh, is heroic. And I don't mean that through hyperbole. I mean that because it's fucking true. And I hope you can feel my sincerity because it's hard what you did and what happened to you. How does that feel saying that? It feels like, why the fuck am I talking about this on my podcast? <laughs> but what's the feeling though? That's a question. No, no, like, no, I know. How I know. are you I'm feeling just, about I'm it? being playful. No, the, the, the feeling is, it feels good. And that's what would have been nice to hear at the time. Yeah. And here's yeah. why. Okay. Because yeah. it's fucking true. Right? The, the problem with a lot of personal development, under good guys, like under good intentions, is that it creates what's called trauma denial. And the reason why people have trauma denial is because they think that by acknowledging trauma, they're a victim. Oh, I'm not a victim. I'm fine. Right? And, and what we have to do is first acknowledge it. And what you experienced is what's called immobilization. Right? So immo- forced immobilization is the worst thing you can do to a human being or any mammal. No mammal wants to be forcibly immobilized. Right? It's the worst thing you can do. It's so traumatizing. Especially when you're young. And like something, someone bigger than you that you trust that, I don't know. But then if your parents aren't around or there's not emotional availability, there's also a part that's like, wow, I kind of like that because I'm not alone now because now I'm so isolated. But is love pain? Is pain love? Like, well, God, neglect is so bad. Maybe this is what's good. So there's all this confusion. And I've had lots of trauma survivors that talk to me about uh, their experience as a child. And they acknowledge that on a certain level, there was a... um, uh, there was there was value in the connection because at least they weren't alone, right? So they got they said, "Well, I'm not alone and abandoned, so this painful connection is better," which is a strange thing to talk about. 
but it, I've had that acknowledged by multiple, multiple trauma survivors I've worked with. And the behavior is still unacceptable. And what you went through is still um, atrocious. And the fact that you had to hold it for eight years by yourself means that there wasn't just one trauma, there was daily trauma as a result. And the term of the DSM for that is complex trauma. Because it's not just what happened, it's the compound effect of what happened too. And so that's a beautiful setup for addiction because I can't trust other people. So I'm going to trust this thing over here. And so, you know, the alcohol, the drugs, far more trustworthy because even though I, you know, kind of being a dick or my body, I'm having a hard time waking up or whatever, at least it's not hurting me and immobilizing me. Right. So, like your process of coping uh, based on your history is uh, intelligent in a lot of ways because there's no one to share it with. And not being able to share it is, is, is re traumatizing every time that it's withheld or sort of swept from the rug or not acknowledged. And denying it and just saying it was an experience, that's like a fifth, that's like 20 or 30 steps from now. <laughs> that's not the first step. Oh, just experience. That's trauma denial. Right on a spiritual experience, sure, it was just a, a thing that happened between two people. But here's the thing: you have a meat sack, I have a meat sack. We have a limbic system, we have a brain, we have all these pathways that we've built. If we wanted to have a spiritual experience, we wouldn't be in this body. So trauma work, you know, spirituality is about sort of having out of body experiences. Trauma work is about having in the body experiences. And to me, that's how you have the ultimate out of the body experiences. You acknowledge this machine that we're in. It's a meat sack and it makes all kinds of weird decisions sometimes to help us survive. But that's the approach that I think is most healing. And I also want to just say that it's, I think it's tremendously courageous to even be able to acknowledge that period, let alone in a conversation with someone that basically just met, right, in a public format too. So, um, and I'm, I know for sure that there are people right now who have not had that experience to be able to acknowledge it that are tr- getting tremendous value from that. So thank you for that on behalf of them too because you're the createst one here. I'm just the one explaining it, but you're the one demonstrating courage right now. Well, I have a sincere desire to evolve and to understand these things <laughs> you know, so I can live my life and not be subject to coping mechanisms with side effects like checking Instagram every 30 seconds or whatever. You know, it's like, I don't do drugs anymore, but it comes out in other ways of, um, and not that, you know, I've done a lot of work around this stuff. Obviously, I wouldn't be able to even talk about it, but I want to move past it and I don't want it to color my future experiences and relationships, or at least to color them as little as possible. But as I've been doing this show, it's, it's really interesting. You know, when I did episode number one, Return of the Jedi, where I, <laughs> you know, told my story, it's a, it's a pretty good hero's journey. I've had a, huge arc of experience in my 48 years. And when I did that, I procrastinated that episode for quite a while because it was a monologue and I didn't know how much detail about my life I want to get into. There was no fucking way I was going to talk about this stuff. I was just even... I was nervous about even saying like, oh yeah, I used to do some drugs. I mean, not even like the acute levels of addiction that I experienced. And subsequently in the past two plus years that I've been doing this podcast and I've been a guest on, you know, I don't know, 80 shows or something at this point, probably. Um, I've sort of like put my toe in the water a little bit further. Like, can I talk about this? And I do it, you know, and the smoke sort of clears and... Kamikaze. Yeah. And all I get is positive feedback, DMs on Instagram, people in my Facebook group, like, oh my God, you talked about this thing. Now I can talk about this thing. And I'm like, okay, here we go. And then there's another one and I go a little bit further and a little bit further. Um, I think Shaman Durek show is like maybe a little too far for my comfort level. But uh, whatever, it's there. Well, the thing is, is that it's not, it's not that he's wrong. It's just you have to do it in the right order, 
Right, right, right. So that's, he's no, totally, totally right, but sense. it has to happen in the right order. And that's a, that's a rather advanced thing that has to happen, but you have to acknowledge it first. Sure. And, and that, that's the most important and, thing. You know, and I've, of course, done a lot of work on on this and other, you know, that's only just one thing that was kind of like the, the low-hanging fruit trauma. There's a lot of other self-inflicted trauma uh, in the years uh, to follow. But I find that... Uh, no matter how much work there has to be done or has been done rather, that there's still, you know, there's still little nooks and crannies in there because like you said, there's different levels to observe something. And I have not, I don't even think by spiritual bypass, but I have arrived through various awakenings at like, oh, wow, this is just a karmic lesson that was unfolding. And it's something that my soul needed to experience for some reason and really gotten to that point and not, and as I said, not in a way of denying what happened or the fact that it needs to be dealt with or any of that. It's just really, really zooming out and seeing that the perpetrator was innocent. I was innocent. We were all innocent. And it was just something in the script of my many lifetimes that was destined to take place. And that I've been able to contextualize that and turn that into a really beautiful life yeah. experience as a result. That's right. Thank God I became an alcoholic and a heroin addict and you know all these things that people would not wish on their worst enemy. I'm grateful for it because I'm the fucking guy sitting here right now because that happened. Totally. I might be another awesome version of Luke's story had I had loving, you know, a loving, you know, connected family and no abusers around. Or who knows? Maybe I'd be, who knows? Uh, even more awesome guy. But <laughs> I like the person that I am. Yeah. And it took that as part of the journey to That's take right. me to where I am now. And, and, and where with, maybe I can have a conversation like this that benefits thousands and thousands it's of people. A, it's, a, it's rare air, first and foremost. Okay. So it's, it, most people don't get that far. And the other thing is, I want to just, because uh, I'm, I'm imagining someone who maybe was just considering this type of stuff for the first time. What you're describing is the advanced awareness after a lot of work. You don't start with, well, they're innocent and I'm innocent. Because if you tell someone who's uh, at a very beginning <laughs> level, like, Definitely well, you know, not. screw you, right? Yeah. And yeah. also, it's completely illegal. And so so there's there's multiple layers, right? So it's like talking about like Return of the Jedi, right? So in that in that movie... Uh, was confirmed that Darth Vader is Luke's father, right? And Luke is like, what the hell? You said that he betrayed and murdered my father. And Obi-Wan's like, well, it's true from a certain point of view, right? And Luke's like, a certain point of view, you know? And, and you know, it's interesting. You know your shit. <laughs> Star Wars I, 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 don't get me started, man. I'm a, huge, <laughs> I'm a Star Wars uh, geek. And, uh, and so the whole idea, though, is that it's all about perspective, right? And so the perspective of someone who, like, the worst day of their life was yesterday... Right with domestic abuse or something is going to be different than someone who's had some distance from that, who's feeling physically safe, who's had some distance from that, who's done some therapy, who's had some distance from that that's tapped into a spiritual perspective, who's had some distance from that that can realize, oh my God, there's this higher awareness. But that's a process. And so if you talk to someone about that at an early stage, it comes off very cold. But if you talk to someone at the right stage, it's the next leap for them. So I want to make sure that everyone understands that this is a, it's a progressive process. It's not something that you just arrive at. Okay, cool. Everybody's innocent because you know Larry Nasser, the guy who worked on all the um, the doctor for the the, the U.S. Olympic gymnasts, right? He should be in jail for the rest of his life for what he did, even if he had trauma, right? Because he abused all those women. Absolutely inexcusable, right? Someone who murders somebody, inexcusable. And the care can maybe not be the electric chair, but trauma, but they should go away forever, right? So it's all within certain contexts. And so in the early days, 
it's a different context. It's like you're a victim, that person's an abuser, and you need that in the moment. But then it's like, you know what? You were victimized and that person was a, a player in your karmic path. That's true too, but you got to get there. You don't start there. So I'll be very clear about that. And so I, I wholeheartedly agree. And uh, many years ago, there's no way I could have even conceptualized that point of view. It has been a lot, a lot of work and unpacking that and looking at it from so many different angles. And I mean, so much therapy and well, so much work around that. And also, you know, 22 plus years yeah. worth of meditation and having such things cross my consciousness and having awakenings that were sort of bestowed upon me. That's right. Of like, oh, whoa, maybe this is not a bad thing. Whoa, you, but you, like you said, you can't jump from just admitting it to your therapist for the first time at 14 to like, oh, maybe it's all in a plan. That's <laughs> you know? right. Like, that doesn't work. That's right. And I agree. You're, but you're, but also to acknowledge it, you are an example of what's, possible beyond the identity of a survivor, right? Because you are right. a survivor. I don't even see, I don't even think of myself in that way. I just think like, oh, I've had a rich experience in life. Yeah. You know? But 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 for the people out there who who that's the lexicon, like you have survived very traumatizing sexual abuse. And now it's something that happened to you, which is like that's 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 called being a role model, right? Um but the most important thing in all this process is to meet people where they are. You know, and where you are in yeah. your development is far surpassed. Because most people, just to talk about it, let alone publicly, oh my God, you know, they would never get that far. Um, so, so, so you are a role model in that way, and it's amazing to see. Um, and um, you know, it's uh, it's something impossible, amazing to own, and it's a, it's a place to get to, but not a place to start. You know, so there's all those things happening all at once. And I'm taking into mind people who are listening at different levels of healing too. Thank you. you know, for I want to say that the beginner. And the advanced. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know? No, thank you for that. I think that's really important because based on the feedback I get when I cover topics like this that are you know, personal and um, things that people have a hard time addressing, I do get responses from people at all different levels. You know, So far, all positive, but that's really important um, distinction to make, especially for someone like you whose business it is to help people overcome these things. Oh my God. What a what a meaningful conversation. Oh. I'm really enjoying this. Thank yeah, you. Yeah, me too. Thank this you. Is awesome. Thank you so much. I love just going into the real shit. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's like what what other uh there's nothing else to do. You know, to me, this is like if you're not doing this, you're just fucking around. Totally. So I appreciate that you're able to go there and provide such insight. Oh. I'm benefiting so much myself. Oh, awesome. Yeah, this is amazing. So if 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 trauma and these negative memories then are stored in your amygdala, right? And you, as you described earlier, you have them in your in your body. And then you mentioned, you know, the way that those are healed is, I guess, getting an understanding of the chain reaction of these experiences that you've had and tracing them back, which is somewhat of a cognitive experience, but that in relationship, you're able to work through them and heal them. In terms of your book, for example, you have you know a forty day program that's outlined where you know I've been looking at it. There's all sorts of writing assignments and things like that. Is it possible to to really undo these things and recover from them where we're not triggered anymore, or is that asking too much of the human experience? So I'm going to do something that is maybe a podcast guest no no, okay, um, but I think it'll be valuable, okay. I want to answer your question with a question for you. Okay. Is that okay? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Go nuts, dude. Okay. Because you're the one asking questions around here. So you said, you know, without getting triggered. So what is it about not being triggered that's so important for you? 
<laughs> I don't want to feel uncomfortable. I see. Okay. So so that's so that's a great question, right? Yeah. So 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 can I grow without feeling uncomfortable? And the answer is no. God damn it. You're right. <laughs> I already know that too. <laughs> right? So it's like can I go to the gym and grow my muscles without feeling comfortable? No. Right? Well, you know, you know what it is? Um Mastin is like, okay, say I injured my knee in high school playing football or something, right? And it's been, you know, it's been nagging me all these years and when I try to rock climb and ride bicycles and make love and do all the things I want to do that require a knee, it bothers me. And then I discover PEMF. Mm-hmm. I meet some experts. It's like, oh, what? Cartilage? Blah, blah, blah. No problem. Sit on this magnet thing. We'll fix it. And it'll never bother you again. I want to do that with my limbic system to where ways in which I've been abused, abandoned, etc. just don't affect me anymore. And I can enter fearlessly into relationships and interactions with people and not have that happen. Just like I could my knee. Like, can we fix the limbic system so I don't go into that trauma loop when I'm triggered. Yeah. So, um, okay. So one of the things that, uh, especially when someone uh, has an experience like what you're talking about from six on, what happens is, uh, because when, when you're six to 14, right? What is that? Like eight years. So that's like more than half your life at that point of eight years, right? So, so there's, what happens, there's this thing called neural expectancy. And what that is fancy terminology for the expectations of your nervous system. So when you're immobilized and when you're in that place of fight or flight or you know, withdrawal and isolation, the neural expectancy is it's going to be like this forever. right? And what happens is, is we get very pessimistic. And pessimism is a sign that the AAC in the brain is not working well. The AAC is right below behind the prefrontal cortex in front of the hippocampus, if I get my uh, neuroanatomy correct. And basically, that's the part of the brain that can tell this too will pass. Like this is not temporary. This is not permanent, right? So when you get like learned helplessness, personal, permanent, pervasive, it's always going to be this way. It's never going to change. It's all my fault, right? Forever, right? What happens is people get, I get so depressed or I get so anxious or I get whatever it is. And my feeling is it's going to be forever. Totally. Right? Never going to change. Versus the understanding that I'm just having this and it's going to pass, right? So that's why I think this too will pass is so valuable. So instead of saying, I don't ever want to get triggered again, I think it's more about, I want to more be more regulated, which is emotionally, which is what you're talking about, so that I don't get as triggered. And I want to remember when I am in that state, which will happen because I'm a human being having a human, or I'm a spiritual being having a human experience, that I know that my expectancy is not that it's going to last forever. This shit's going to change. I'm not going to be here forever. It might be super uncomfortable, but it has a temporary uh, timeline. And if you look at the, uh, the, 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 the pharmacology of all this, if, a tr- if, a, if an emotion gets triggered and not re-triggered, so, just, so if a thought triggers an emotion and doesn't get re-triggered, 90 seconds is how long it takes for all those chemicals to release and pass through your body. Right. So what that means is we're about 90 seconds away from the state that you're talking about at any time if the thought doesn't get re-triggered. But if the thought is, I can't get triggered because I'll stay in it forever, that's going to not be a good setup for long-term emotional self-regulation or co-regulation versus, you know what? This is just going to pass and I'm going to be okay. And that starts to uh, get a little bit more uh, of your brain healthy to say, you know what? This is going to pass. And the other thing is, as you talked about uh, the amygdala, right by the amygdala is this part of the brain called the hippocampus. The hippocampus is where context is stored. What does this mean? Right? So the answer to that question is in the hippocampus. So the hippocampus also, if it gets traumatized, can stop growing. Right, so not just getting your brain scanned, but like, how big is my hippocampus? Oh, damn! I right? need to go to the question. Amen Clinic. It's a very interesting question. 
The other thing is we can grow the hippocampus. So you can go to your functional medicine doctor and actually take supplements to grow your hippocampus into uh, a healthier state, which is part of uh, you know, changing context and meaning is getting a better hippocampus. So the idea is instead of saying not being triggered again, is I want to have less of a trigger so I can have more affect regulation or emotional regulation so I can feel better. And I want to remember it's not going to last forever. And if you can say that, then you can get your reps in. Because if I'm going to go to the gym and I feel like I have to bench press forever and I'm never going to be able to put this weight down, I'll never go to the gym. But if it's just a set, then it's a set, right? Just like in yoga, right? How many times you talk about Taze, right? So her teacher, Gurmukh, is famous for like, you're up there doing Kundalini yoga with Gurmukh and you got your arms in some awful position and you've been here for an hour and you're like, <laughs> for like an hour and like your shoulders are killing you or you're doing the bear claw or something, right? And you're like this and Gurmukh's up there and she's like, okay, you're almost done. Only four hours left, <laughs> right? And you're like, four hours, bitch, like easy for you to say, you know, and you just get all angry, right? And she's up there all smiling and stuff like that. And it's like really uncomfortable because it feels like it's going to last forever. But even in the Kundalini tradition, what do they teach us? They teach us that on the other end of something like that, if you hang with it long enough, it will pass, right? And so the same thing is true emotionally, right? Is that the emotional sensation will pass, but your nervous system feels like it's going to last forever because at one point it did, right? So it's, I don't think it's about not being triggered. It's about having a more comfortable trigger. So it's not quite as big where you go back to you know, doing drugs, which is clearly where you are. And to realize that when it happens again, this is a momentary process. This isn't going to last forever. And that to me is a little bit more of a a pragmatic approach based on the fact that you have a nervous system, right? To really never get triggered again, you would only be spirit. (laughs) Right, right. Yeah, that's like you were saying before. If you're you're remaining in the spirit realm and you don't become embodied, then yeah, you... (laughs) You're not getting triggered, or at least we, you know, not by anything happening in the body because you don't have one. <laughs> but since I have what I believe is uh, volunteered to enter into this meat suit and cruise around here and eh, learn the stupid lessons I have to learn on the earth plane, <laughs> um, that it's kind of part and parcel. And that I can I can agree with that because I feel like I have agreed to come here and you know have the experience that I'm having. I think it's just like. I have such an aversion to pain that um, as I start to build more awareness about what's happening around, you know, becoming um, triggered is the term we're using. It's like, oh yeah, this part of my brain is affecting the nervous system, blah, blah, blah. It's pumping out cortisol and adrenaline. It's almost like it's a relief in one sense to know what's happening. Oh, it's just the nervous system freaking out. But it also sucks because I'm like, but now I want to fix it. Like There has to be a supplement or something I can take when I'm full of adrenaline and cortisol, some breath work, something to just make this stop. I know that it's illogical. It's unnecessary. I'm fine. I can have that experience. And so I guess it really is about um, learning how to sort of accept that that's part of the human experience. And as you said, knowing that uh, the triggers can be less severe, you know, less of a spike on the graph of pain and also shorter in duration by just kind of surrendering to the fact that this is what I signed up for. Yeah. And those things you're talking about, like holotropic breath work, you know, um, long exhales, right? So long exhales is one of the best ways to regulate your body because you can't be stressed out and in flight or flight and exhaling at the same time, right? When you're <laughs> like, that's kind of what stress looks like. In the, in the, and by the way, if you want to be stressed, so in Kundalini work, right? If your inhale is, let's see if I get this right. If your inhale is shorter than your exhale, okay, you'll create energy or anxiety. If your exhale is longer than your inhale, that activates what's called the vagal break. The vagal break 
helps you get regulated and get your emotion or your system back into sort of parasympathetic, right? Dope. So like, go just do some long echoing cars, man. Right. Like, seriously. <laughs> right, seriously. Right. right. That's great. I have that on my Spotify playlist. Like that's like probably one of the best uh, meditations for like activating the vagal break. And what's amazing about that too is that like Kundalini yoga should be called uh, vagal nerve yoga because everything that helps regulate the vagal nerve is done in Kundalini yoga from long exhales to humming, vibration, like mantra. The power of mantra isn't just in the meaning. Like, so if you're going to pronounce the Siddhi Guru Granth Sahib or the uh, Mool Mantra, Ekonkar, Sat Nam, Sat Guru Prasad, like all that stuff, right? There's meaning behind it, right? Or Sat Nam, long exhale. But the vibration regulates the vagal nerve, right? So singing, chanting, all those things wow. help regulate the vagal nerve. So Kundalini Yoga is a great process for regulation. But if you don't deal with the developmental stuff, it'll keep popping back up. Does that make sense? Yeah, that's so interesting because... Even though I'm a practitioner and a teacher of that particular style of yoga, I mean, you know, teacher I use loosely. I don't teach at a studio, but I could bust some stuff out and uh, have been, you know, ordained uh, as such. But when Yogi Bhajan specifically in those listening, he's the Indian gentleman that brought this particular practice to the States in the late 60s um, in Los Angeles. But when he talks about what it's doing physiologically... Honestly, I'm in the back of the room going, bullshit. <laughs> you know, like, I'm like, how do you know it's doing this to the pituitary and the hypothalamus? You know, all the stuff he talks about in terms of the organ systems that are affected. I'm like, really, dude? How do, you, how do you know that that's true? All I know is like, I go into class, I'm tweaked, I walk out, I feel amazing. Like, yep. the results speak for themselves. But I don't know about the rest of that stuff. Yeah, either, but what you just said, Vegas I've not, not sure. heard. That's really fascinating. Well, every religious practice, it, okay, data set. Okay, every religious practice has been around for the most part for thousands of years. They have a huge data set. Okay, they all involve certain things. Okay, chanting, some type of long exhales, co regulation where they're together, right? And usually some type of like bowing process as well or body movement process. Those are all designed intentionally or not to regulate the vagus nerve. Wow. Okay, so whether or not it's, you know, Muhammad or, you know, Guru Nanak or Jesus or whoever, right? Like, cool, like have your religion. But we all have a vagus nerve, right? And it needs to be regulated because if it's not regulated, you're going to be in all kinds of dis, dis, you know, disorder emotionally. And so Kundalini Yoga is probably the best modality because we have it at all of our events. I have it at all my retreats. Really? Oh, yeah. Everything. Oh, that's has, awesome yeah. to know. Yeah, and I don't it, teach it. I bring in the best teachers. That's so great. I don't do it um, myself. That's great. Uh, but we have it all of our retreats, all of our live seminars, all that stuff. Because the other thing is, is that you have to be embodied. So if you want to be self-aware, right? Uh, Bessel van der Kolk talks about this. It's like, you know, a lot of psychotherapists are like, I don't know if my client is ready for yoga yet. It's like, no, you need to do yoga to get ready for psychotherapy. It's <laughs> the other way around. <laughs> right, right, right. You need to be self-aware. Because you imagine like you like at a Kundalini class and then you go see your therapist, like best idea ever. Right. And so that's how we organize our events is because when you're embodied, you're more self-aware, more ready to be self-aware too. That's cool. And more regulated emotionally. I love that, dude. Yeah, I, I recently did a workshop. I'm going to do another one uh, in the at the Venice Rama, but I did one in New York and I didn't call it a Kundalini Yoga class. It's just a workshop called the High Love Experience, you know, and just about really looking at what's blocking us from having the experience of unconditional love for all of reality all the time, which, you know, trauma would be definitely one of those things. Um, but I definitely wanted to integrate the chanting, the breathwork, and the music. And it was a really transformative experience. And then I went to Tony Robbins and I was like, that's what this dude's doing. You know, Which he learned from Guru Singh. No way. Yeah. Get out of oh, here. Yeah. yeah, yeah. 
Oh, that is so funny because I'm, you know, obviously the techno, it's like a whole different environment. It's definitely not a chill, like yogic sort of scene <laughs> in a Tony Robbins event, which was the most challenging part for me, by the way. Uh, I'm very finicky about music. And if it involves a techno beat, I'm out. Um, but any, but, yeah, it was rough. <laughs> Tony's like, some of this work's going to be really hard. I'm like, I don't care about the writing assignments and like, you know, the groups. I'm, I'm good. It's like, just please don't turn that music on again. That's hilarious. But I um, have one song that he plays that I hate too. So I know what you mean. Yeah, yeah. But, but I did. I was really watching, you know, how he uses the movement and has the somatic experience as part of really anchoring those things in and all the breaks he takes and... I was really observing just him as a teacher. He's quite a master at doing that. And it really reminded me of Kundalini Yoga. Yeah. No, he, he, he Guru Singh is a, a good friend of his. Um, and he sometimes facilitates some of his stuff. Oh, and so, so all I didn't work, know they were connected. Yeah, I, totally connected. I know Guru Singh. He's been on the show yeah. too. Yeah, they're totally connected. And, That's um, so weird. And the thing about Tony is uh, he 100% is a master. He's a friend of mine. He's a mentor of mine. And my wish for his work is it to be more trauma-informed because what happened at the UPW about a year ago when he had addressed someone who was a part of the Me Too movement. I was movement. at that one. Yeah, so like, so yeah. like, I'm sure there's lots of context created beforehand. And all there was, stuff, trust right? me. Right? The shit, and, just by, for the record, the stuff that came out in the news was so edited. Twisted. Yeah, it was for sure. bizarre. I was like, right. uh, I was in the fucking room. Right, exactly. But, you know, that said. But, but, but with the context of like, he, you know, you, you don't go to a woman that you're taller than and get in her face. Right? You get lower. Right, so NLP one hundred and one, like proximity yeah. modality, submodality. You want to get lower. You want to, you know, lower your tone of voice. And what that taught me, uh, and was a, a really catalyzing event for my career, was is that it's it's a part. It's participating uh, in trauma denial because the NLP protocol, right, neurolinguistic programming, and the whole human potential movement that was sort of initiated by Warner Earhart has so much good shit in it. It's so good, and the idea that it doesn't matter what happened to you, just change your state now is so uninformed about how trauma works, right? Right. And so um, I find it fascinating because when you look at Tony's trauma history, which he's very public about, he talks about how hard, uh, how bad of a mother he had emotionally, right? So I guarantee there's developmental trauma that he has not addressed around that relationship that I think was made manifest in that moment in a lot of ways. And I have no idea how he's responded to it or reacted to it since. But the trauma-informed approach to like an environment like that is so important because you can... like The difference between me and Tony is that Tony's the world's best at helping people get into a peak state. And I feel like I'm the world's best helping people feel safe to do so. Right. right, right. Uh, which is a different, different skill set in a lot of ways. That's funny right? because uh, another thing that was challenging for me uh, at, at the recent um, date with Destiny I went to in Florida was... The seminar in the world I've, that I've ever attended. That was great. Yeah, I mean, I, you know, I don't know that I would do it again because I feel like I got what I need to get out of it. But aside from some of the music just not really being my vibe, <laughs> a lot of the peak state stuff was very difficult for me because I'm just, I'm kind of chill. I don't, sure. I mean, I'm an extrovert, but I'm not loud. I don't really scream, you know, like being all hyped. I'm not into sports. I'm not like a huge gym guy. I'm just not that guy that like spazzes out. Um, so that was actually really hard for me. And, but the Brazilians, man, are they the best? Yeah, at that yeah, event? Totally. The Brazilians are the yeah, best at totally, Destiny. Totally, yeah. And also the dancing. You yeah. know, I just I'm I don't enjoy dancing. I'm never inspired to do it, especially if it's not music that sure. I don't like. And so when you have to get up and change your state and dance and stuff, that was kind of traumatizing to me. 
And, and part of it, oh no, part of it was because oh no. what you said, like you get people ready to do that. It brought up all my shit, all my insecurities, and about looking like an idiot, and like there's people watching me, and they're gonna put me on the jumbotron and <laughs> with a weird the, face, yeah, yeah. like all that stuff. And I'm like, really? I'm embarrassed now. I'm in a room full of four thousand people just losing their shit. Like no one's looking at you, Luke. But it brought up that self consciousness, totally like that. Well, you know? and again, it's not. See, the thing is, I'm not against anybody. Like I have so much respect for Tony. But personal development, spirituality, mental health, it is a buffet. So his section of the buffet is required, necessary. He's a living master at what he does. To be able to watch him facilitate is a gift, right? And there's more, right? Yeah. And so, you know, uh, if I were with Tony, I haven't talked to Tony in probably a couple of years, but I would love to get into it with him about his developmental relationship with his mother and how that may have played out in that situation and like what his relationship with women is like, you know, in terms of like safety and all that type of stuff and what would acknowledging trauma be, be like for him and has he done that work? I have no idea what happens behind the scenes, but yeah. that was a very public experience. And in the context of the Me Too uh, movement and, and environment that we're in now, you know, it's really important for personal development and spirituality to upgrade and to understand trauma and to be able to understand what is it like to be marginalized? What is it like to have another sex that's dominant, that is objectifying you? Like Those are important contexts for people like us who have white privilege to be able to acknowledge and go, huh, and white male privilege, yeah, there is this other perspective and acknowledging it doesn't make me a victim. Acknowledging it is very courageous. Once I've acknowledged it, then I need to change my state and move forward. But without acknowledging it, we can't go anywhere. So I think it's a, it's, a, it's a new conversation and a new layer of context for the personal development world that it really needs to consider. And my personal goal is in the next five to 10 years that if a modality isn't trauma-informed, it's extinct. Because it doesn't take into the full context of things that you're describing. It's not that it's bad. It's just not complete. Just like software gets upgraded, modalities have to get upgraded too. Yeah. Well, as we're going, you know, circling back to what we talked about in the beginning, I mean, I think <laughs> just about every emotional, psychological ailment that has um, befuddled mankind is a result of trauma. I mean, just there's no one I know that hasn't had it. It's just a matter of how they've reacted to it, you know. And some people, as you said, have had more support um, in the in the wake of trauma than others. And now, what I'm seeing based on this conversation is. Those of us that lacked the support and understanding in the wake of our trauma have been re-traumatized, you know, by right. holding that for the period afterward, which is a really, really interesting thing to contemplate and to um, to understand. And that explains a lot of why, you know, I've seen people, my peers, friends, et cetera, loved ones that have had varying degrees of trauma, why it affects so many, so many people so differently. You know, I see some people just, they seem unscathed by horrific things they've been through. And some people, you know, just whatever, a kid stole their lunch one day and they're like, ah, oh, just ruined their yeah, life. That's right. You know, it's so funny how, how that is. And I want to I run one concept by you. Um, and that is, it's something that I've repeated a lot just based on the observation I just described in it. For some reason, I just quote this Bob Marley lyric that says, every man's burden is the heaviest. You know, and it's like, do you think that each one of us kind of experience whatever trauma we experience? Like, it, say, you know, some kid stole my lunch at school and that was the worst thing that ever happened to me. And some kid broke your nose in school. Would our trauma subjectively be equal? I mean, taking out of the fact of however we were cared for afterward and all sure. the rest of that. Yeah, the, the, the brain is a good question. The, the, uh, a lot, so this happens, we, it's, it's interesting how the Western competitive mindset 
shows up in my work with my clients. I'm because, more traumatized than him, bro. Oh man. <laughs> like they want to like either like compete for like who's most traumatized or like, oh, well, that never happened to me. So I what I went through is insignificant. And and the real truth is the brain interprets pain the same. So pain is pain is pain. So no one's trauma is more or less significant than somebody else's. What you went through is what you went through. And if you were traumatized and had pain because of it, that's what's it. That's what is, right? So it doesn't matter what the context is, right? Because, you know, at a certain point, if you have enough neglect, you know, just someone, uh, I don't know, saying hi could set you off, right? I have no idea, right? So, so it's really hard to uh, put it on a scale and say, well, this trauma is more severe than that trauma. That said, I mean, Holocaust is pretty fucking bad. Rape, horrible. You know, things like that are atrocious. Um, and what's fascinating when you get into talking to survivors is that everyone has a unique response to what happened to them based on the things that we're talking about. So it's totally contextualized based on the individual's unique makeup. So there is no one uh, way and each person has to have their own uh, approach in terms of like how you work with them because what's traumatizing for one person for somebody else may not be, right? So um, it's, it's, it's completely 100% subjective. Right. That's the sense I get. I guess that then would support my uh, adoption of Bob Marley's lyric. Every, every person, every man, every woman's burden is the heaviest to them. That's right. Like my trauma hurts me just as much as your trauma hurts you. Even though comparatively, if we put them on a blackboard, yours looks worse than mine. That's right. And you know, when Gary Vaynerchuk says stuff like, uh, you know, your parents went through the Great Depression... Uh, in a world war and you're worried about Instagram, he's also right. There has to be certain context. <laughs> right, okay, you know what I mean? Yeah. So there's also... Yeah, but, yeah. But, but suicide is high with children, right. right? Because there's so much isolation happening. So the other thing is, is that he's also not right. Because in a lot of ways, uh, yeah, they went through the Great Depression and the World War, but there was a lot more face-to-face interaction. There was a lot more co-regulation happening back then, a lot more community being happening back then. And now there's so much isolation because of social media that you know, like like we're raising people who are not as resilient because there's more disconnection. It's not Gen Y or Gen Z or whatever that they're just, you know, these like snowflakes or whatever. They're literally not connected and they're literally more susceptible as a result. So even though our grandparents or great parents went through the Great uh, Depression or World War, which is horrible, awful, major traumatizing world event, nuclear bombs being annihilated and millions of people, all that stuff is horrible. There was also more social connection happening. So, you know, the reason why you're seeing like, you know, teen suicide rates increasing is because of all the disconnection and isolation. So, you know, there's a, a part of what Gary does that I love, but there's, I wish I could grab him and go, hey man, so like, let's talk about this because it's also important to understand that because you're sort of reinforcing a stigma, you know, in a lot of ways. And it's not bad. It's just, there's more to it than just like, oh, fuck the people who don't believe in you and move on. <laughs> right, right. I love it, dude. Well, when you talk about your um, coaching and, um, you know, I have a sense at some point, did you do one-on-one coaching with people and now you're just doing these these events, workshops, retreats? Like if people want to come learn more about what oh. you do and experience your healing, like how do you interface with people other than putting a book out and going yeah. on a podcast? Uh, well, this is great. And the book is a really great thing to do with uh, like, you know, if you have like a trauma-informed therapist or someone, like it's a really great companion for a 12-step process. Like this is really good work to do. Um, but in terms of how we coach with people, we have online courses, we have seminars, uh, all that stuff can be found at massandkip.com. 
And the way that I work is um, we like to work with uh, you typically longer term experiences. So we'll do four or five day seminars that will give people so much information. But then we usually offer about a year long coaching program. It's called ProsperX. Inside that pro- program, there's uh, you know one on one coaching, and all of our coaches are like licensed therapists too. They're trauma informed. They're functional medicine certified. So they're like total badasses. Like our customer service people have masters in counseling and psychology, ten years of history in uh, trauma therapy and stuff like that. So like. Building a team to support this work has been very interesting. But when you come work with me, it's not just me. It's like the whole team in a lot of ways. Um, and you know, it's, uh, I, I work with people who are... you know, They want to be like the special forces of personal development. right? So they don't want to just do like a mantra and a meditation, which is nothing wrong with that. But if you want to like go into it and like resolve some shit, like that's what we do. Um, and so you know, that's all at massandkip.com. And we have different programs and experiences throughout the year where people can join us. That's dope. I want to do it. <laughs> like, I, after the Tony Robbins thing, I was like, okay, cool. I, I think I'm done with this kind of stuff. I'm good. <laughs> I was like, okay, there's another level. Uh, yeah. I'm going it's, to, I'm going this weekend, I'm going to a place in Costa Rica called Rhythmia. I've heard of that place. That's yeah, cool. And that's, that's awesome. About to do some crazy shit down there. So nice. Pura Vida. It, it never ends, you know? <laughs> yeah, it never it's just, ends. Um, so yeah, that's great. I'd love to, um, you know, send some of our listeners to experience what you and your team do. It sounds that's great. That's cool. I, and the yeah. first place is probably claimyourpowerbook.com because yeah. there I also put together a totally free 40-day coaching process. So cool. I literally like coach someone through because the people at Shelf Help, right? No one, they buy the book, they don't read it. Sure. So even if you don't read the book, uh, the daily videos that are totally free can kind of give you the most important stuff for each day too. Oh, that's so awesome. It's like what totally a great free. idea. That's a great idea because you're so right. I mean, I have a shelf full of books in there and <laughs> I read a couple of chapters. Oh, this is great. Yeah, you know. It's like even one recently I read uh, Jen Sincero's book, You're a Badass at Making Money. I love her. I love that book. And I, I got the audio book and then I got the written book because at first I'm listening to the audio book and she's like, now write down, you know, when you learned, you know, that money was evil, blah, blah, whatever looking at those subconscious blocks. And I was like, yeah, when I get home, man, I'm going to write all this down. I get home, <laughs> like I ain't writing shit, yeah, you know, yeah. the tapes in the car still yeah. or whatever. Yeah. Tape. What, what am I, what am I in the eighties? We don't have tapes I know anymore. What you, meant. <clears throat> you know? And then, so I was like, all right, I need to get the actual book. Then I read the book and I'm like, yeah, well, that's great. I should go write that stuff down. But right now I got to go make a coffee, you know, and I still never totally. did it. So that's I love... why we do our live events too, by the way. Yeah. So because Smart. people, you know, even online courses, they take them. And we deliver as much value and connection as we can. That's why we do our four day events, like come and get this stuff done. Because I'm a big believer, like don't like hide the level two stuff for like the upsell or whatever. Like just give away all the information. And what we really sell or, or what we offer is more implementation support than anything else. Because that's the hard part is the implementation part. Yeah. You know, the data, all the information's out there, but getting stuff done, that's the hard part. And you can't do it by yourself. Very you know? much so. Yeah. So yeah, I, I feel yeah, I do that too. That's cool. Well, I you know, I, I just appreciate your perspective and the work you're doing. It's amazing, dude. Dude, well, this has been a great conversation. Your questions are amazing too. So this great the quality of the conversation is based on you and your questions. And so you've been uh, you rocked it. Thanks, dude. Well, I think the thing is my, my secret to success, um, since you claimed the success, not I, the humble one, uh, is that I'm really passionate about the questions that I'm asking. Like yeah. I'm I'm deeply curious about the way the human experience is supposed to go or not supposed to go, but the way that it can go if you want fulfillment and happiness and if you want to make a contribution. So yeah, it's, I'm stoked. Um, my closing question for you, my friend, is uh, just when I think I've learned everything, I sit down with someone like you and I'm like, <laughs> uh, exploding oh, brain emoji, learning so much. Who have been three teachers or teachings that have influenced you and your work that you might send our listeners to go check out? Okay, so I'm going to say one and then three. Okay. Is that okay. Yeah. Go so, nuts. so, so the guy who got me into this is Tony. 
And I have total respect and love for him. And he is a living master and his interventions are amazing. Like I would not be sitting here today without his work, without Date With Destiny. Date With Destiny is the best seminar I have ever attended as a student. It's, it, it is an incredible experience. Okay, now in trauma. Um, I would say there's probably three. I mean, there's more than three, but if I had to point people towards three people, um, it would be um, Bessel van der Kolk, who wrote a book called The Body Keeps the Score, which is a vital book in understanding trauma 101. Um, another gentleman named uh, Stephen Porges, and he is uh, out of uh, UNC Chapel Hill uh, School of Medicine, Psychiatry, and also the Kinsey Institute. And he's the author of a uh, uh, emerging science called polyvagal theory. And a lot of stuff I'm talking about, the vagus nerve, yeah. he wrote polyvagal theory. I think Dave Asprey actually had him on his podcast. That's a great place to start, Polyvagal 101. There, he has a book out called Clinical Applications of Polyvagal Theory, which is like all the science. And then there's like Polyvagal Theory for Therapists, which is a little bit more layperson. That's a great place to start as well in terms of understanding polyvagal theory because if you don't understand polyvagal theory, you're missing the most important part of the whole thing. You understand the microbiome, you understand the brain, you understand heart rate variability, but it's the vagus nerve that makes all that stuff connected. So it's kind of like understanding San Francisco, Los Angeles, New York, and LA, but not understanding that there's a highway between the two <laughs> right, and right. how the highway works or how the planes get there. Um, so so the Stephen Porges' work in polyvagal theory is incredible. Bessel van der Kolk's work around developmental trauma is huge. And then the last third is two people. So I'm sorry for that. Um, one would be uh, Sue Johnson, who is sort of carrying the torch around attachment theory. And she just wrote a book uh, called Attachment Theory. And- Wait, is this the Hold Me Tight? Lady? Yeah, Hold Me Tight. Yeah. Oh my God, I love her. I've been listening to, um, listening to a lot of podcasts with her because I have that book. And I was yeah. like... She's, yeah. a dear, she's a dear friend of mine. So if you want an introduction, oh, I can yeah, do that. Oh yeah, I want yeah. to interview her. It's, it's funny because I was going to mention her when we were talking about just unabashedly the kamikaze mission of like, hey, sweetie, you know, that I'm in a relationship with. Here's the fucking wacky stuff going on inside of me right now. That's her shit. Yeah, yeah it's exactly. Just, yeah. It's so, oh, that's great. Yeah, and I'm, I was so, so yeah, so that's why I say that's creating that secure attachment. Yes. Which is what she's all about, right? ARE, attentive, responsive, engaged, in proximity. So, um, yeah, so Sue Johnson's work, she has a brand new book out actually called Attachment Theory and Practice. And the basic idea is that if psychotherapy doesn't adapt, adapt Attachment theory, it's going to go extinct. And it's kind of like Attachment Theory 101. For Lay people can understand it too. So that's an amazing book. And then Dr. Ellen Bader, E-L-L-Y-N-B-A-D-E-R. And she is the world's best relationship expert. Best. So like I have respect for Harville Hendricks. I have respect for John Gottman. I have respect for Esther Perel. All their work is amazing. And Ellen is the like, because she's like, so good at practicing and hasn't really done a lot of marketing. She's like this undiscovered gem. And she is the best in the world at relationships, especially entrepreneurial relationships and differentiation in terms of how can I be you or I be me and you be you. And then we're different together. Like, how do we do that? And she has a book called, I think it's called Tell Me No Lies, which is again, not the best book title, but it's the best book on relationships I've ever read. I mean, let's face it, Hold Me Tight would be off-putting to a certain totally. demographic. That's true. Too, like, dude, you know? Especially if you're avoiding yeah. Like, no yeah. way. Yeah. No, so, get away from me. The, the sexual anorexic does not yeah. want to read Hold Me Tight. No way. Yeah. No way. But, um, but yeah, so, so Sue Johnson, Ellen Bader, Bessel, Porges, um, those are some really incredible. Dude, those sound amazing. amazing and I've never beings. heard of any of them other than Sue Johnson. So that's, yeah, so that, that's, a, that's like a rabbit hole. Dude, that's amazing. <laughs> no, that's going to be great for our show notes. Uh, to get the show notes emailed to you guys, go to lukestory.com forward slash newsletter. 
Uh, or you can just text the word lifestylist to 44222. And you won't get this one with Mastin Kit because obviously that newsletter already went out this morning when this would have been published. I'm speaking That's in, good time travel right in many time frames right now. Uh, <laughs> but you will get next week's show and everyone to follow. And um, you know we go to great lengths to put all of these resources in the show notes, of course, so that you'll get on my weak-ass newsletter list. I mean, <laughs> that's the call to action, by the way. Sign up for his newsletter, guys. For yeah, God's sake. action. Come on you now. told me you had half a million on your newsletter. I'm like, yeah, okay, I got work to do. <laughs> by the way, when I transferred to me, they almost all left. Are you serious? Yeah, talk about abandonment, right? Wow, so, everyone yeah. unsubscribed when you were like, oh, I'm not this, this thing like anymore. I don't like this new thing you're doing, Master. Like, oh. Wow. And look at you now, man. <laughs> look at you now. I got your own stadiums and workshops and all this stuff. Well, listen, man, thank you so much for, you know, the, your generosity of time too. You know, some people come in and they're like, okay, I've got an hour and I got to leave. And you said you didn't have a heart out and here we go a couple hours in. And yeah. I just think this is what it takes. And um, I don't know, conversations this meaningful and uh, hopefully impactful, um, they require a couple hours to get it done, man. There's just too much to cover. So thank yeah. you for... Well, and, and the thing is, like, I guarantee this one probably opens up lots more questions. So it's like kind of right. like... This is like, uh, it's dangerous because it's like now there's like the rabbit hole to go down, right? Because it's kind of like just the intro to, to trauma, you know, but there's so much more you get into too. Oh so. my God. I mean, just based <laughs> on the recommendations you just gave, I'm like, whoa, there's other whole works on this stuff too. Oh man. Jesus. There's like, like the one thing that Bessel taught me uh, is that the research that we wish we could do about trauma has probably already been done. It's just in a vault somewhere because those people are researchers and they don't know how to market. Right? right. So a lot of the research has been done. So like Bessel van der Kolk and all of his work, uh, his trauma conference, like that is where it's at in terms of all those conversations because that's where all everyone's going. Sue Johnson and what she's doing, like and and Porges, like those three plus well plus Ellen. So those four, they're like they're like the they're like the um the innovators of the space. They're like the Elon Musks and the those kinds of people of this work. And and the you know the standard sort of um, therapeutic model looks at them and goes, oh man, they're way out there. And in about five seconds, they're going to be the most relevant people in mental health. So, oh, that's yeah. great. I'm definitely going to, other than Sue, I want to look those other ones up. I heard Sue on a podcast the other day and she was talking about the data on the results that her therapist, I think they're called EFT. EFT, emotional right? focus therapy. Yep. Yeah, she's like... Which is not the same thing as tapping. I know, I know. It's yeah. confusing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the tapping thing, the EFT, emotional, whatever, freedom, freedom technique. technique. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but she was saying, oh yeah, our uh, success rate is like 99%. Like people, our, our couples don't relapse, meaning they don't fall back into their old patterns or break up. I'm like, right. what? Yep. What couples therapy has those kind of results? Well, I when mean, you take in the context of biological attachment of how human beings form relationships, and it's not just about stonewalling or sexual promiscuity being suppressed or something, right. and you actually get to like how we're wired and you make a secure attachment, that's the most important thing you could do in the world. You know, right. so yeah, I mean, her, she's the she's a total badass. That's amazing, dude. and I love her personality too because she's like yeah. so, and she's at a place in her career where she doesn't care. Totally she just says shit that's like the real shit. Yeah, you know? and it's like her uh, her methodology has been proven. Yeah, and she's got oh, yeah. the data, so it's like she's like whatever. This she's, is my thing. She's doing a training. Oh no, she just did. It was a couple weeks ago. She was doing a training here in LA. Oh no way! Oh man, I gotta, I gotta, yeah, I gotta get more of that. Yeah, she's a badass, especially just at the time in my life right now. It's kind of you know, this is the. I'm on the precipice of a serious breakthrough in this yeah. area. So it's well, cool. it's for real, if you want an introduction to her, done. Because she's cool. uh, she's on my faculty uh, and stuff like that in terms of helping me with uh, the institute we're putting together and stuff. So she's a total badass. On it. Yeah. Love it, dude. All right. Well, thanks so much for joining me. Yeah, man. This has been great, Luke. Thanks, man. All right, thanks, Master. 
Wow, mind blown. I wish I had a little bank of sound effects here on my board so I could go mind blown. What a conversation. I told you guys in the intro, this was a very transformative episode. I'm hoping that it was as much so for you as it was for me. Uh, I am now officially trauma-informed. Now, listen, I knew going into this this uh, you know interview with Mastin that my childhood screwed me up and that weird things happen, as do, and that I did some things to myself over the years that were harmful. And, you know, that was kind of the root of any problems that I've had. But I don't know. He just made it so clear that this is the issue. Like, this is the problem for anyone that is acting wacky and um, being neurotic and having addictions and compulsions and trying to cope. You know, we're all trying to cope. We all have different ways. Some of those ways can be very self-destructive. Some of those um, ways can be destructive unto others and the environment and the planet. And so if we can all become a bit more informed about our trauma and how to heal it at its core, we're going to spend a lot less time, I think, just spinning our wheels and going after the symptoms, you know? All of the misbehaving that we humans do, I think, is really uh, the symptom of the underlying trauma. And so I just, man, this was just such a perfect timing for me to clue into this stuff. And uh, Mastin, if you ever hear this outro, thank you so much for doing the show. Really, really great guy. And um, I truly enjoyed the time that we spent. I don't know why I'm talking to the guest when I should be talking to you, the listener. Let me talk to you. Thank you for joining us for this conversation. I'd love to invite you to support our sponsors, Onda Wellness. You can go to ondawellness.com and get the bomb-ass CBD, which might not heal your trauma, but it'll definitely calm down your nervous system that's freaking out over your trauma. So go to ondawellness.com, enter the code LUKE15 and save 15% off. If you want to chill out and you want to sleep better, you need some blue blocking glasses. So go to blueblocks.com. That's B-L-U-B-L-O-X. Enter the code lifestylist and save 15% off. No, seriously, the moment you put blue blocking lenses, at least the right kind of lenses over your eyes, you know what happens? You start producing melatonin and you stop producing cortisol. Even during the day, you can use blue blockers to just calm down. It's crazy. It actually works. It's science, man. Then we've got Organifi, Organifi.com forward slash Luke. That's Organifi spelled with an I. And if you use the code again, lifestylist at Organifi, you'll save 20%. Uh, This morning, uh, my girlfriend said, well, you know, you need to eat more salad, I think. You really don't eat enough greens. And I said, what are you talking about? I had two heaping tablespoons of Organifi this morning in my smoothie. And um, per usual, she cutely, adorably rolled her eyes and moved on and went and bought some kale and broccoli. Anywho, um, yeah, that's what's up. Listen, you can also find all of our sponsors at lukestory.com forward slash store. So, you know, it's great if you go to their sites directly, if you want to check out some of their stuff, it's a great way to support these amazing brands that fund this show. Um, But you can also find them on my site where you can find just about everything that I've ever used that is beneficial for your health. That's lukestory.com forward slash store. I've got everything neatly categorized there. And the the coolest thing about it for me is that I don't, I mean, I call it a store, but I don't sell anything. I just find the dopest stuff and I throw all the links up on my website along with some discount codes, which is awesome for you. So go check it out. Here's what you really need to check out though. This is what's up. Next week's episodes, it's going to be a couple of few of them are called Welcome to the Jungle, My Ayahuasca Journey at Rhythmia. 
and it is quite a journey, folks. As I said in the intro, I carried my recorder with me down in the jungle as I went through not one, not two, not three, but yes, four ayahuasca ceremonies. It was heavy. I've just been going through the tracks that I recorded there, and it's like I didn't record them on ayahuasca, but just around the whole experience. And it was so cool for me, even, you know, in the third person to sort of go back and listen to that. Now it's been a couple months later and go, wow, that was a heavy situation. And more than anything, what was awesome about the Rhythmia episodes and the whole experience in general was that really the whole purpose was to help heal trauma. And that's exactly what I got. And you're going to hear a play-by-play in excruciating detail if you tune into next week's very special episodes. Welcome to the jungle. Here's what I'd like you to do before we sign off. Ready? I'm going to give you some kind and compassionate instruction. Please, pretty please, with organic beekeepers naturals, honey dripped on top, share this episode with a friend. I always ask you to do this. You know why? Because it's really helpful to me. Of course, I want this podcast to be the biggest podcast ever uh, for a number of different reasons. Some of them selfish, some of them not. And um, you can do you know, your part to help just by clicking share in the bottom right-hand corner of your app. At least that's where it is on my app. I, I use the Apple podcast app. And um, click share and just like text it to a friend and say, this is awesome. You need this. Check this out. This dude's interesting, if nothing else. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening to the Lifestylist podcast. I'll be back inside your brain, drilling some truth in there on Tuesday with Welcome to the Jungle, my ayahuasca journey at Rhythmia. Parts one, two, and maybe even three. We'll see how it goes. This episode of the Lifestylist podcast was produced by podcastmasters.net. 